Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the 1980s graveyard. Coming back quick. Actually, I'm not sure how quick it will be because I don't know how the episodes are going to air because we got Halloween episodes coming up or something. But at some point in time, you have heard my good friend Trev, Trev3K, a.k.a. I would say. He's he's an internet presario. He's uh, he's got multiple pockets, got everything. But he, you know, he still needs to put a little bit of change in his pocket. So he is a part time grave digger here at the 1980s movie graveyard. Trev, welcome back for now. I believe your fourth appearance. Uh, yeah, fourth or fifth. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks. And like the the term grave digger is like really appropriate this time because we are really <laughs> digging up a, this... a movie that's a, a little under I'd say underappreciated, but I mean oh, yeah. I'd say. Digging up is the right term because one thing about the 80s is the 80s were great for genre film, obviously. Right. But that also means that a lot of, like, cooler, smaller dramas really got forgotten about or just ignored. Well, there was a lot of kind of production outfits, producers. uh, You know, I don't know where they got the money or why they want to get the movie business. But there's, like, a lot of companies. This movie tonight was made by a company called MCEG, which I think made a whopping three or four movies. But these, these companies would pop up. Movies come out. If it, you know, they they usually would get the financing for like four or five movies. If one of those movies didn't hit super big out of that four or five, they were just done and they closed down. And I think unfortunately that's what happened with our film tonight. Tonight mm-hmm. we'll be talking about the corpsiest <laughs> of all the movies we dug up here in the 1980s movie graver. <laughs> we are talking about the movie based on the book by Robert Cormier. Uh, directed by Keith Gordon, his director, directorial debut. Man, I cannot talk for shit tonight. We are talking about The Chocolate War. Welcome to the 1980s movie graveyard. Thank you for helping to keep the theater clean. Gift certificates are available in the lobby. Remember, no talking during the show. Now sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. All right, and I want to jump back right into this movie. Um, I, I know a lot of people are like Chocolate War. What you know, they're used to getting you know fed by us these these classics of 1980s cinema that everybody saw on cable. Maybe maybe you are one of the very few obscure people who saw this on uh, cable. That would be a treat. I I didn't even discover this movie until um, I think when it came out on DVD, which I believe was 2007 ish. And the only reason I found it because it stars uh, Elon Mitchell Smith, who uh, was a teen actor in movies like The Wildlife and Weird Science. And I just want to see, you know, he, the guy only did maybe five or six movies and some TV appearances. I want to see all his movies. So I said, put this shit on the Netflix list. It came down the pipe. You know, I saw it like right after the DVD. I was like, oh, I, I'm going to watch this eight, ten times fucking over the next couple of years. I know. So I, I fucking bought that DVD. So let's get it started. We got our sync instructions as usual. Uh, we have it paused on literally when you put this DVD in. Uh, there's like a lion that plays, but it's actually not part of the movie. It's just separate. So the actually beginning of the movie is just, it's going to be on black. We're at the one second mark. So the earliest you can play this thing and pause it at the one second mark. That's where we're at. You got your remote ready, Trev? I got it. All right. I am going to say one, two, three, go. And when I say go, everybody hit play on your DVD players. All right, everybody, one, two, three, go. All right, here we go. Chocolate Wars rolling. Right away, you see that great MCEG logo, Jonathan D. Crane production, which was a friend of uh, Keith Gordon. Uh, filmed by Keith Gordon, Chocolate Wars. Very, you know, I kind of like these um, simple credit sequences. Even stuff like Breakfast Club had very simple credit sequences, if you remember. Yeah. Chuck. 
Oh, yeah. And I'm not going to put on airs. I mean, a moment ago I was talking about how, like, oh, this film deserves to be, you know, dug up and everything. But, I mean, as you know, Goat, I hadn't seen this movie until uh, just a few days ago, actually. You you told me about this film and suggested I check it out, and I went ahead and rented it. And I fell in love with this movie roughly two seconds in once they started playing uh, In My Room by Yazoo. That's <laughs> and I was right. like, I'm I'm pretty easy to please, and I love that song. And I was like, oh, this is great. I just love this opening. Yeah, especially people who, like, are kind of open to the, the kind of, like, new wave-ish bands. Like, this movie actually really got me into Peter Gabriel, because one of his songs is on the soundtrack as well. Yeah. And uh, the movie starts out, I love the kind of, well, I guess it isn't really a cold opening, because it is technically after credit sequences, but it's this handheld camera, which you did not see very often back then. This handheld camera, and it's just looking at green grass, and it swings up, and you literally see, like, first-person perspective of a football player sacking a, a practice quarterback, which mm-hmm. is our, our hero, Elon Mitchell Smith. And, um, yeah, just, I mean... There's right... some kind of joke I'm struggling with my head about green grass and handheld camera. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe this, <laughs> this is the genesis. This is where it all came grass. from, yeah. Yeah, he's just like... He saw it as a kid in, in England or Scotland, where the fuck he's from, and he's like, Greengrass, and he's like, and shaky camera. Greengrass probably isn't Paul Greengrass's real last name. He probably no, was just but... like, you know, this was the moment in cinema that inspired him to become a filmmaker, so in homage, you know, I will become Paul Greengrass, and I will have the shakiest camera known to fucking mankind. Mm-hmm. And we even get the first-person perspective, you know. The the movie, this uh, scene here kind of keeps switching back between the just the being... I guess the simulation of being in the middle of a crowd of people swallowing you up, tackling the shit out of you. And, and like, this is the only weird part of the scene is, like, you know, the coach gets up and he's like, Renault, you know, uh, what's your what's your name, kid? He's like, oh, Renault, Jerry Renault. And he's like, oh, you want to be a quarterback and all this shit? We'll come back tomorrow. And, like, they sent him into the showers, I guess because he'd been getting his ass kicked. But, like, the uh, <laughs> the practice keeps going on somehow. <laughs> he's not that important, you know. Yeah. But uh, we kind of get one of the first, like, nice directorial transitions here. And we should say this uh, this this is a high school movie. If people ain't seen this movie. They're, like, they're still completely lost. They're like, what? It's a football movie? No, nah, it's not really a football movie. This is, uh, you know, a teen high school drama that takes place at, uh, what do you call this, a boys' Catholic school? It's pretty yeah, much. Christian, yeah. like a Christian academy, Catholic academy, yeah. Yeah. And uh, here we see Renault hitting the showers. And uh, paint it uh, above, like, I guess the doorway of the showers is Go With God. And uh, this movie's pretty deep on the metaphors and really using high school as a microcosm for a lot of things. Uh, yeah, had you, uh, have, now, have you read the novel? or I have not, because, you know, this was supposedly, doing, doing research on this movie, um, you know, after I seen it, this was supposedly a huge book. For, I guess, you know, before there was quote-unquote YA, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Before, like, every, you know, the, the, before everything was, like, a superhero, like, teenage science fiction thing. You know, teen books back then, they were, like, these little drama books. But, yeah, this was supposedly a super popular book, but at the same time, it was very controversial because of the Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a book that's still, like, um, you know, I, working at a bookstore, I know it's still a book that every teen like fiction area will have a few copies of it so it's something i'm very aware of like i've walked past it like a hundred thousand times you know but i guess i never really knew like what it was because i've never read it and now watching this film has made me want to go back and check it out yeah and there's even a sequel to the book yeah Yeah, beyond the chocolate war 
I wonder how good that is, you know. I if that was just it, and also, too, because there are some differences in the book in this mm-hmm. movie, mainly the way that it ends. And, like, I kind of really prefer the ending of the, the movie, so I don't even know how much I would like the sequel, so to speak. Yeah. But let's get into, you know, overlooking the, uh, the well, not really overlooking, they're just kind of hanging out in the bleachers, these two kids. One's named um, Archie, played by Wally Ward. The other one is... Uh, one of Trev's absolute favorite actors here, Doug Hutchinson, <laughs> is playing Obi. Yeah. And Doug Hutchinson, like, when you see him in movies, like, he always looks old as fuck. But he, I was shocked when I first saw this first time. I was like, wow, it's Doug Hutchinson. He's actually looking young here. Although he was older than he's playing. I was reading right, about yeah. how he was, like, you know, 24 or something playing, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 16. But that was just practice for when he would also play younger than he really is when he married Courtney Stodden. Exactly. So. <laughs> Gotta get some nice Courtney Stodden. No, but, uh... Uh, I might be slightly off here, but I believe uh, uh, Elon Mitchell Smith and um, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Wally Ward here. He now that he's grown up, I guess Wally Ward is a fake name, so he goes by Wallace Langham now, I believe. Yeah. But yeah. they were like 19, playing like three or four years younger. Or Doug Hutchinson was like playing like eight years younger. <laughs> you know <what laughs> but he's still great. He, he looks young in it. And uh, basically, what's going on here is Obi Doug Hutchinson. He's writing down in a notebook, kind of transcribing what Archie says, and it turns out they're in. I I would I wouldn't even call it a, like a gang because it's not. It's more like a secret society that exists. Yeah, it kind of like feels like Skull and Bones or right. It's like, like it's like a baby yuppie wannabe version of Skull and Bones, but this isn't like really a privileged school at all. So it's like very, you know, poserish. I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, but they 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 are Archie is like kind of the leader. And Obi is the secretary, I guess, or the second. He's not the second in charge, but he's always with Archie, like, dictating the demands and whatnot. Yeah, he feels like the secretary. Yeah. And their little fake skull and bones is called the Vigils. And basically, they saw Renault taking his ass beating on the uh, football field there. And, you know, they do this thing where, you know, not everybody in the school is in the Vigils, so to speak. Like, there's maybe only about 20 members of the Vigils. But if, if the Vigils, like, choose you... And uh, it seems like at one point in everybody's career at the school, you know, their four years, they get chosen for one assignment. And uh, basically, they summon you to their secret lair. They tell you what, you know, and usually it's like kitty prankish shit. And uh, they see Renault here, and Archie's like, oh, I like this kid. You know, he's getting his ass kicked on the football field. He's tough. Let, you know, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pick him for an assignment. And Obi's like, are you kidding? Like, his mom just died, like, right before the school year started. Like, we can't pick him. And, you know, this is the first, you know, kind of time we see this in this movie. We, You know, there are a lot of characters in here that have a cruel streak. And it plays a big part in their actions and kind of what happens. And Archie's like, oh, you know, I fuck, I don't care. That makes it even juicier for me, you know. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll pick them for an assignment. And, you know, they don't say what the assignment exactly is yet. But, you know, they're just kind of making the list. I guess, I guess this is still fairly early in the school It's year. actually pretty great. Like, he just says, like, uh, what, what assignment, what's his assignment? He says, put him down for the chocolates. And you don't know what that means yet and it's right. a great way to just kind of build like uh, a slight mystery i also like this then it heads into this kind of sequence where jerry's having this like dream or daydream right. fantasy about his mother's death with the coffin on the football field and yeah there's, I mean, there's this we're, we're, we're not very far into the movie but i remember watching this a few days ago for the first time and just thinking like right away like man what an assured directorial choice and right. job by keith gordon to be this young and to write a sequence like that 
you know, it probably was his youth and inexperience um, just being like, you know, you know, we need to tell this story of him losing his mom without it taking up a lot of screen time. So that's mm-hmm. probably why he came up with these little vignettes of these dreams. You know, there is, I think, one time later in the movie where one of these, he, we see him waking up, but I think it is more like a daydream or just like a weird consciousness fantasy. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, we, you know, after that, like, weird, bizarro version of his mom's funeral and a couple quick flashes of his mom's sick, you know, she died of cancer is basically the story. Uh, we get treated to, you know, kind of what the home life is like now with his dad, who's in very heavy mourning. His dad is a pharmacist. Uh, I'm not sure if he owns the pharmacy or just works there, but his dad is a pharmacist. And um, he just pretty much, I guess when he's not working, he drinks on the couch. So, you know, we th- I thought this was a great little two-minute scene kind of summing up Jerry and his dad's relationship. Cause you know, he's trying, it's like, he's trying to pull some kind of emotion out of his dad. Like, you know, just, you know, I don't know if it's for his own comfort or he's trying to help his dad, but his dad's very just much like, Oh, everything's okay. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. It's very flatlining emotionally. And Jerry's like, well, you know, don't you have any great days? Don't you have any bad days? You know, does it in his dad's response is it's a pharmacy, Jerry, Every, everything's kind of the same, you know? And it just, I don't know, I thought this was a really good scene, just like, in a quick way to set up what the relationship is between the father and son. So, I gotta ask, you know, what brought me to this movie was Mr. Mitchell Smith here from loving his work for years and years as a kid from Weird Science. And that was the only movie I really knew him for for a long time. Mm -hmm. What do you think about him as an actor in terms of... Uh, you know, I don't know. It's I wouldn't call myself a fan. I think I think his biggest problem is that it seems like all the movies he's in, he's surrounded by better actors. Right. It's hard to kind of, you know, in, in Weird Science, when you're up with your with like you know Anthony Michael Hall and Bill Paxton, you kind of get outshined, and I think he gets outshined a little bit in this too, um, by you know Wally Ward and uh, oh, yeah. especially especially who's on screen now too, you know, um, but. I don't know. I think he's all right. I think he carries this well enough for the kind of part he's playing. But to hear you say that's why you came to the film, I don't think I ever would have come to the film because he's in it. Yeah, it's just I grew up with that movie for so long and watching it so many times. I just was always so curious. And then when I read that he, you know, he's actually a college professor now. He's mm. taught at a couple of big schools. Uh, I think he's now back in the California area teaching I'm blanking on I think he might be at Cal Davis now, or if he wasn't, he was at one other time. He started out his teaching career in Texas, but, uh, yeah, and I think, I think he's doing voice worker now, but yeah, he retired from, I guess, like, the parts were dwindling down, and I think his last movie was some really shitty Melvin and Mario Van Peebles cheap-ass movie, <laughs> and I think after that, that drove him into retirement, but yeah. This- I think when I was a kid, I think I thought he was the same kid that was also the lead in uh, Real Genius. Right, yeah. yeah. He's like but, a, uh, that's he's just like some a, other little dweeb, you know. Yeah, he's like a less dorky version of that kid. But the, him and that that guy, that kid from Real Genius, they could definitely play brothers without a question. Yeah. Now, yeah, this is the first um, classroom scene here we have, and this is with uh, J- John Glover's his name, right? Yeah, John Glover. He's great. Yeah, I love John Glover. He's great. You know, it's it's, it's pretty. It's like hip nowadays to play Donald Trump, right? But John Glover yeah. was doing that shit back in the early '90s with Gremlins too. He really was. <laughs> he really was. Hey, Don, what was his name? Donald Clamp or something? Donald Clamp. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I of course remember him from uh, like to me, he's primarily Lionel Luther from 
10 years of Smallville, you know, but just a, right. one of the great like Hollywood sleaze bags, you know, and I don't mean like him personally. I'm no, sure he's it, a it really nice guy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's just, he just oozes like when you see him, it's, you never think he's going to be a good guy. You know? Yeah. And I heard, I heard they shot this scene actually. He was like super sick, had like a 103 yeah. degree temperature and he still kind of got up and did the scene and shit and then collapsed right after. But basically what's happening here for people who haven't seen the movie, I'm going to do a little bit more explaining in this. Not, not a whole lot. You know, I'm not going to try to bog it down, but I know a lot of people haven't seen this movie, but he's basically, he pulls this kid Bailey out, who's like the best student, probably in the school, but definitely in this particular class, and accuses him, accuses him of cheating. Uh, John Glover here is, is he, he's, his name is Brother Leon, which I'm not sure exactly, because I didn't go to like private school or anything. What, what, like, what exactly is it? He's not like a priest, right? Uh, no, I didn't go to Catholic school either, so you got me. Like, yeah. I... But he dressed, I didn't realize that because he looks like a monk. I didn't realize right. this is what the <laughs> yeah. All the teachers here they dress like monks and they're all brother this, brother that. You know, um, you know. I guess. But I guess that makes sense if they if, if the nuns are sister or whatever. Right. Then I guess. So I'm guessing they're like not exactly priests, but they're like whatever the male version of a nun would be. Again, excuse us for the ignorance. I'm not sure. You know, because everybody I know who went to Catholic school, I always just heard them talk about being taught by nuns. So, yeah, you know, I and know. I was raised Catholic, but thankfully I was able to avoid the whole Catholic school thing. Yeah, it seems terrible not going to school without girls. Like, I would probably yeah. would have dropped out if there was no girls at school, to be honest with you. But basically, he pulls his kid up, Bailey, and he accuses him of being a cheater. He's like, I know you're a cheater. He's like, because you're perfect. You always get A's. And, you know, the only person who's perfect is God. And, like, he really, like, lays into him, starts ripping him a new ass about, do you compare yourself to God? Do you think you are God? You know, and all this. And, like, the class, you know, they're obviously, some, you can kind of tell some of the kids are, like, a little, like, what's going on? They're nervous. Other kids, you know, the more cruel kids are probably laughing about it. And there's even a part where Brother Leon takes his, like, what do you you call that thing, the pointer? Mm -hmm. uh, That you, like, point at shit with the board. He takes it and he intentionally kind of, you know, whips it back, you know, like, accidentally, but he does it completely on purpose. And he whips Bailey right in the cheek, almost in the eye. But Bailey never wavers, and he's, you know, and, and, and he, Bailey's about to piss his pants. He doesn't know what's going on. He, he keeps denying being a cheater, you know? And, yeah. And finally, when the um, the bell rings, everybody jumps up to get up to around the class, and Brother Leon, you know, tells him, sit down. And he really starts relaying to the whole class, calling them idiots and all this, and cowards, and saying, like, you enjoyed watching this. You know, you know Bailey's not a cheater, but yet you sat there and, and like he basically he actually does say, you know, for a moment this classroom became nineteen forties Nazi Germany, you know. And uh I don't know, he just he probably have to see it to understand the dynamic here, but like I thought this was like a really powerful scene. Like It is, and it's a really it's a really interesting performance and the way it's written, and I'm I don't know how much of it comes from the original novel and how much of it was Gordon, you right. know, his screenplay, but it would have been really easy to play this brother Leon character as just really over the top evil, um just a real like, right. you know, douchebag. And Glover does something different where he you can kind of tell there's something sinister to him, but they don't play it like he's a jerk to all these no. kids all the time. Like he has, he had, there's this moment earlier in this where he talks about, I wish he could be like their friend. He makes a joke. They all kind of laugh. They you do see moments later where they kind of all seem to get along with him. And it just seems like more like they're all afraid of him. Cause they know he could turn you know, on a dime. Exactly. But overall, like he, it's not like he's not, um, the kind of dominant scary teacher that you see in a lot of films like this. No. Yeah. And, and, and you know, a lot of high school movies you, you would see, 
you know, these bratty high school movies, they're not realistic in terms of, you know, the kids, they teach, te- uh, treat the teachers like clowns and shit. Like, no, like, you, you get the dynamic here. They're more friendly with the brothers, you know, than you probably would be a regular teacher. But at the same time, the, the brothers, they, they, they command more discipline and, and attention and respect and authority than a, than a regular teacher at the same time. It's a really interesting dynamic. And I think kind of what you got there is, like you said there, uh, Brother Leon, he's not evil and and even though he makes some really poor decisions in this movie and and gets really like off the wrong track as a character like in a bad way i think really that that opening scene he he's a guy who's clearly full of hubris and has a lot of ego probably much more ego than you know one of these brothers should have but i think you know watching this movie many times i get the feeling that it's kind of like with him it's like he meant to do something good, but his ego mm-hmm. got him more carried away, and that's like what led to his downfall. You know what I mean? Like it's not yeah. really, yeah. It's not like a malice. It's not a pure evil. But here we go. It's kind of the first scene we see Jerry waiting for the bus here, and he kind of sees you know because he you know he wears a uniform. He goes to this Catholic school or, or parochial school or whatever it is, and uh, he kind of sees the regular kids. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. What, I won't call them punks. What would you call this, this style? No, I was actually just about to say. I was just about to say it's not really punks, but I, that's. Oh, I don't know what I would call it, but I do want to give uh, Keith Gordon credit again because I think in so many movies we've seen from this time period made by adults, they would have made these kids up like those kind of stereotypical right. '80s movie punks that aren't realistic at all. And Gordon, being young when he made this, had his finger on the pulse a little bit more. And just really dress them like what those kind of kids really do dress like, right. and it's just kind of more like, I don't know, I guess like maybe stoner would be the turn or the term, yeah, like rocker, yeah, edgy, yeah, like I mean, black leather jacket kids from the the eighties, you know what I mean? And uh, th- that that scene, you know, the the girl played by uh, um, Jen- Jenny Wright, yeah, Jenny Wright. I was gonna say Jenny Nash, but no, it's Jenny Wright. She's uh she's was great in a lot of eighties movies. I love her in I Madman and then obviously yeah. Near Dark. Near Dark. Yeah. But she kinda comes and makes fun of him for, you know, being a little square in his little uniform and stuff. And I like these bus stop scenes and there's a few of them throughout the movie and you know, this one definitely happened, but some of them later might possibly be dreamlike. But just seeing right. these kids in their leather jackets and her, which obviously he you know, has an attraction to this girl. I, th- you know, I love how, you know, he watches them with envy, Jerry does, because they're free, you know what I mean? They don't, they don't have to deal with the pressures and the, and the, you know, the, the, the environment that he has at, at his school and whatnot. They're just free kids. They're probably skipping school or dropouts or whatever, but, you know, he sees the freedom that some people his age can have and how they're willing to stand up and be different and whatnot. Her role is the part that when I remake this film in a couple of years, I'm going to have Miley Cyrus play that part just to annoy you. <laughs> just annoy me. Well, if she's good in the part, I mean, I won't complain, but that wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> what would be a worse choice for that role, Zendaya or Miley Cyrus? <laughs> you know I'm going to pick Miley. That's yeah. My heart is with Miley. So anyway, here here we have kind of the scene that sets up the main crux for the rest of the movie. Um, I mean, this is a very character-driven, dialogue-driven film, but we're only 19 minutes into it, and uh, already we're kind of setting it up here. Basically, what's going on is um, uh, Brother Leon has summoned Archie, who's head of the vigils, and kind of what's happened here is Brother Leon's swinging for the fences with the school's annual chocolate sale. 
usually, and it was like the best year ever. The previous year, they sold 10,000 boxes of chocolates. But the, the boxes of chocolates were $2 boxes of chocolates. My brother Leon, being the dummy businessman that he is, he went and bought a bunch of old moldy chocolate, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He bought Mother's Day chocolate from the right. previous year, which he assures these chocolates have been stored in the premium, the highest quality conditions. They just have to get the boxes of chocolate, take the little purple ribbon off that say Mother's Day, and then, and then send them into the kids' hands to go out in the community and sell as regular chocolate. And these fuckers, these are big boxes of chocolates, aren't they, when you see them? Like, oh, yeah. They're, yeah. They don't seem like Mother's Day. They seem like the whole, like, Witness I want to get laid on Valentine's Day kind yeah. of box of chocolates. And not only, not only these chocolates, because they're big chocolates, you know, the last year the chocolates sold for $2. He's got to sell these now at $4 a box to make a profit. Yeah. And he wants them to sell 20000 Right. He wants them to sell double the chocolates at double the price of what they sold the previous year. And, you know, he explains to it. And, and I thought this was a great kind of character thing where, he, where he's talking about, you know, he's trying to get Archie on board to use his uh, sway with the vigils because the vigils influence the students. You know, he he kind of needs their support to, like, kick the kids in the ass to get them to, you know, do this chocolate sale. And there's a great moment where he's like, you know, like, he really did do something out of ego here, and, uh, you know, it kind of gets explained later the reason he swung so hard on this chocolate sale to try to make so much money for the school is he's actually bucking for, I guess, the head of the school job because the, the brother who's the head of the school is out ill and probably won't be coming back or whatever. So he, he, he wants to show, you know, how he took over this chocolate sale thing and made it so huge that, you know, he can be headmaster at the school. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we go. We got the first kind of secret meeting. We see the vigils, and they picked this kid, uh, Gober, who's actually, we don't even know it now, really, but he's Jerry's best friend, and they're giving him his assignment. And basically the assignment is that Gober has to go into one of the classrooms, and he has to take, not actually take all the screws out of all the chairs and desks, but he has to loosen them up enough to that if you barely touch them, they'll all fall apart. Right. And, like, Kind of the the kicker of this is, I guess this is kind of the vigil's own internal way of uh, keeping their their leaders in check from not becoming too cruel. Is after Archie tells him the assignment, he explains. Now we're going to draw. Well, I'm going to draw marble out of this box. If I draw a white one, that means you do the assignment. If I draw the black one, I have to do the assignment myself. And what do you think? I thought that was a good little twist there. Yeah, I like that. And especially, you know, obviously, it, it's the kind of thing you see, and you're like, "Well, that's going to come up again later," and it does. Right. So yeah, it's it it's does. a good setup, and it's a good setup and payoff. But uh, I do like that just because it's that one little extra element that does play more into this. Like, oh, this is one of those kind of secret societies that have all these kind of crazy rules and traditions. Yeah, that have been passed down over time. Yeah, it's like that. It's like that sex book in American Pie. You know, it reminds me of that. <laughs> it just keeps getting like passed down from one class to the next. Now, the main two vigils that you really have to know are Archie and his secretary, Obi, played with Doug Hutchinson. But we get introduced to the rest here, and most of them are just, you know, they're background guys that, you know, don't, really don't have any lines. But there kind of is a third one who's kind of like, I don't know what you would call him, the the master of ceremonies. He, he does seem like he's like the president or whatever, you know. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't really know exactly what Archie is. Maybe, I don't know. Because I don't think I, – I, I feel like the character you're talking about who's played by um, everyone's favorite oh, right-wing yeah. celebrity Twitter troll. I was going to uh, say, Adam. if you're a woman and you like playing video games, you're probably a big Adam Baldwin fan, aren't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's who's playing. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I feel like Adam Baldwin's really the guy in charge of this whole this whole group. I feel like he's got power over Archie. And one thing I'm dying to know is because this film came out in 88 and Full Metal Jacket came out in 87, but obviously you can always film things earlier and whatnot. And I'm curious if, like, Adam Baldwin played the hard-ass gorilla motherfucker and, uh, and uh, Full Metal Jacket and then walked right onto this role of, like, a 17-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm uh, what I'm more curious about, Goat, is did you ever, uh, when you were younger, was there ever a time where you thought Adam Baldwin was a Baldwin brother? Oh, absolutely. And not only did I think he was a Baldwin brother, but because he was in, like, movies first, I thought, mm-hmm. well, he's got to be, like, the older one. Like, I almost thought it was, like, a Vincent Chase, Johnny Drama situation. I was like, he broke into the business, then he started bringing all the other ones in. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. There's, like, one other Baldwin somebody, too. You, you could get confused, and if you didn't think he was a Baldwin brother, you pro- if you're just watching the really early 80s movies or mid-80s movies, you would probably think he was somehow related to the kid from Phantasm as well. <laughs> Michael A. Baldwin. Yeah. But I do like Adam Baldwin as a screen presence. It's definitely yeah. one of those cases where you got to separate the person, uh, you know, because over the last few years I've kind of been like, oof, I don't – okay, so I'm not a fan of Adam Baldwin the person. No. <laughs> but, I, but I do like Adam Baldwin the actor. Well, I, I think and, uh, I think for me too is is I, like I I was like I don't know if I would call him a fan, but he would always pop up in movies that I liked. So mm-hmm. it was like it was like I felt like I knew him like as an actor before I knew like what his personal beliefs were. And you know, like you said, like you know, I don't know, like you can like somebody as an actor or whatever. You know, if they're they're a musician or whatever they are, you can like them as that. Even yeah, if you don't I mean, I don't have to hang out with the guy. You know? No. Yeah, I mean. But I mean, I mean to me, like the Gamergate shit was kind of the worst. But I mean, whatever. Yeah. We'll let it go. Or, or, okay, before I let it go, one one more thing. All right, you got to go out and I, you know, Friday night, going to whatever BW three something, have some wings, have some beers. Are you going to ask me if I have to go with Adam Baldwin or Doug Hutchinson? Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, I'm gonna jeez, oh, I'm gonna pick Hutchinson just yeah. because I can direct the, the conversation to like let's talk about X Files, let's talk yeah. about uh, Punisher Warzone. You know, I don't uh, uh, tell me some Courtney Stodden stories. I'm sure he's got some. You know, yeah. But. Adam Ball is probably just gonna bore you with the latest talking points from that morning's Rush Limbaugh broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> Here we have now the the chocolate sales being introduced to the, um, you know, all the kids at the school. And everybody's like, are you fucking kidding me? Because Brother Leon, you know, he wants everybody to sell 50 boxes per kid. And you can tell everybody's just sitting here in silence thinking like, oh, what the fuck? Like, no, like, no, it seems like nobody wants to do this. Like, I remember when I first started selling the chocolates when I was a young kid, like the first year or two, it was fun. And then it became a chore. Did you ever sell shit for your school ever, Trev? Uh, not chocolates. I can't even remember what we did, but I, I know we did have something. I think ours was cookies or something like this. But I, I remember, I remember, I like never hit the goal, and I just right. would stop caring after a couple, right. after like a week or so, you know. Well, I remember um, kind of what what fucked it up for me was the first couple of years I did it. We had like those little world finest chocolate bars, which people actually like, and you can't really get anywhere other than a kid walking onto your doorstep and selling you one. So like that was kind of cool. That was kind of okay. And then after a while, I guess because they got a better deal, the school started selling just little, like, cardboard boxes of M&M's. And nobody wanted to buy M&M's. 
because you could buy M&Ms anywhere, anytime. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it was not mm-hmm. special. And then the worst, I think, after I moved when I was in sixth grade, the last time I had a so anything was i had to sell fucking coupon books of pizza hut coupons and no, like i think i sold one like maybe mm. one it was fucking horrible but uh i don't i don't ever remember if it ever being like in this movie where it's like you know like you have a choice to sell it or not i just remember being handed the right it must not have been because i know i would have said no every time exactly. i would have been like i would have been a little jerry renault you know <laughs> would have been a jerry renault but Not yeah. to lead, I would, but the difference is I wasn't like trying to lead a rebellion or anything. I'm just lazy. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, with that little scene where uh, John Glover, brother Leon, was introducing the sale to all the kids, like I feel like you know he's like giving the spirit of pep talk. Every boy, and, you know, he, and he's saying like the true sons of uh, Trinity, which is the name of the school is Trinity, and the true son. Like he's he's always making saying like it's like patriotic to do this to support your school. You know what I mean? So we got a little scene of uh, Gober, a.k.a. Goober, um, taking all the screws out. Doug Hutchinson comes in. Now, now Gober had to, like, sneak in just by himself and start doing it. Hutchinson and one other guy who I don't think you could see, they come in. They got ski masks on to take the screws out, didn't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they act like they was ready for a Charles Bronson movie, <laughs> like Death Wish 3 or something. They were going to do some serious crimes, but they just take the... Um, Screw help him help Gobert take the screws out, and it cuts to the next morning in the class when all the the desks fall down and shit. And this, this, I don't. They say his name. I think this is Brother Eugene. They say his name later. Uh, apparently, he took this prank very harshly, didn't he? Yeah, I had like a nervous breakdown from this, yeah. and you can kind of see it here. Look at that. He's got yeah. this like super disappointed. I also like that as soon as the desk started collapsing, all these kids turned into like. Like four-year-olds, you know, yeah. they're just like almost jumping up and down, playing with the pieces of wood. This is the greatest thing they've ever seen in their life. Yeah, and and like, you know, I don't know if it was the kids in the class or just other kids came to look in the window in the, in the doorway there. But uh, Archie was looking in the doorway with some other kids at what happened, and uh, Glover came in just. And this is where the, the, I think that's the first time where where you start realizing like Brother Leon is like really. And, you know, this is back in the 80s, too, when you could probably spank kids in school and shit. But he grabs fucking Archie by the, the, you know, his jacket front and pulls him and pushes him up against a wall and shit. I mean, this is clearly a different time, a different era, and Brother Leon, like, being pretty out of control and probably having Mm -hmm. license to do whatever the fuck he wanted to these kids. You know what I mean? I like Archie's haircut in this is the kind of haircut that when this came out probably instantly signified him as a bad guy. Yeah. But now it's like the cool kid haircut. Yeah, it's like the Tony Hawk haircut without like the side part being like shaved off. It's just trimmed where you have that real long piece hanging on one side, you know? Now we just had like a little, it's like really brief, but an interesting moment where um, Adam Baldwin's character actually tells Jerry like good play, you know, gives him a compliment on the field. And I think that's like a nice little character moment of like seeing like they, like again, you could just play the characters horrible the whole time. But... Uh, you could play it either way. Like maybe he said that because he knows they're going to give him an assignment later, so he's trying to like butter him up a little bit. Right. You don't. Or he know. could just say, "Yeah, you don't know." Or he could just say, "Maybe he really thinks that was a good play and like like actually maybe likes this kid." Well, like the thing is, is I mean, you could definitely classify the vigils as bullies because they are using peer pressure. They are using this thing stuff but later on and not quite yet in the movie but later on we're like we sh- we see like a real bully who's like beating people up for their lunch money and bullying all this shit so i mean the vigils that you know especially archie like he gets off more on like making people kind of 
hang themselves, so to speak, than he does just mm-hmm. brutality of bullying people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And here we have, uh, yeah. So Renault, when he was done with, um, uh, sorry, football practice, he found the. You know, we see him get the same type of note that Gober got saying, you know, you have an assignment, but but you know they kind of skipped that scene, so we don't know what the assignment is at this point, really. So here we go, and this is like, this is the scene where everybody says whether they're selling the chocolate or not, and you can see Gober was like reluctant, and like uh, Brother Leon was like, so what is it? So what is it? Like really pressure him, and finally he says, yeah, I'll sell the chocolates, whatever. And then finally gets to Jerry Renault, and just like, he's like, are you going to sell the chocolates? And he's like, no. He's like, so you're saying no? He says, yes. And Brother Leon's like, well, what is it? Uh, clarify, like, are you yes or no? Or what are you saying? And he's saying, I won't sell the chocolates. And, like, it seems like at this point already he's still, he's, like, he's the only person that's not giving in to Brother Leon's, like, browbeating about selling the Yeah, chocolates. and, you know, again, I, again, another nice choice. And once again, I don't know. I wish I had read the books. So I knew who his idea was, Cormier or Gordon. But we saw Jerry get the note that said he'd come for your assignment. But they don't they don't show the actual meeting that he has with the Trinities, or I mean with the Vigils. Yeah. So so when we got to this scene, I have to admit, watching this the first time a few days ago, I didn't even instantly I didn't even pick up on the idea that like oh this is his assignment to say no. Exactly. I was I kind of took it like uh, like it was like just pure rebellion from him, and maybe it's like him upset about whatever happened with the Vigils, or they also like you don't know if this is before that meeting, so. It's played really cleverly in terms of, like, timeline, you know, in terms of making it still, like, is this his choice or not? Exactly. And, like, the thing that's that's kind of cool about it is, you know, with this early part, like you said, we don't know. And, you know, Jerry's pretty traumatized, you know, from losing his mom. Like, he's, I mean, you can tell, like, I mean, he, I would still classify, classify him as a quote-unquote normal kid. But you could tell he's, like, really distant in terms of, like, not really fitting in at the school and not really... Maybe not fitting in is the right term, but just like he's not all about what the school is all about, if you know what I mean. So here we have Brother Leon. He's meeting with, uh, and uh, he's kind of taking over the headmaster, I guess, temporarily here. His his uh, his office. He's putting his cushion down on this big, almost throne of a seat office chair. And he's got the, uh, I guess, the, the school treasurer. And uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting that, like, you never really see, like, I guess the faculty of this uh, school. It seems like they always use the students to do as much work as they possibly can. <laughs> that, man, I buy that. And that's that's one of the more realistic elements of this movie, I think. Yeah. So he's got this kid who's just a fellow student who um, he's clearly um, – well, I guess he is in with the vigils, I was going to say, but he does communicate with them. But I don't think he's one of the vigils, technically. But uh, he's like the class treasurer, I guess you would say, or the school treasurer. And he's keeping the figures on the chocolate sale. And, and you know, Brother Leon's been hyping this up. Come on, kids, sell this chocolate, all this bullshit. And, you know, he finds out the initial figures, and, you know, they're not good. The chocolate sale is not going good. All right. Uh, what do you think about this scene right here where we get introduced to the real bully of the movie, uh, Meal Janza? Like, I thought this was a great scene, and I think it really kind of, in a real easy way, set up the boundaries and the differences between Archie and his bullying, and then, like, literally just, like, a beat-you-up, take-your-lunch-money bully here. Yeah, I like it, too, because, like, you can actually go through the whole movie wondering, like, what's the worst, what's the the worst kind of bully, you know? Right. And really, at the end of the day, I think it's Archie. You know, right. it's one thing to just get kind of punched in the face, but... 
the power that Archie has over this bully, right? Who's typically this is like you, this, oh, you think of kids like are afraid of the big bully that's going to beat them up in the schoolyard, and then you see that he's afraid of Archie. You know? Exactly. And that just tells that's a great what a great metaphor for the world, right? It's always kids, guys like Archer who we have to watch out for. And they like, should make like man, they should make like a, a chocolate war sequel that takes place now that shows Archie is like a, exactly. a senator now or something. You know? <laughs> I would love it, but yeah, Jansy here he's kind of like your typical. You know, I don't know if his ethnicity is supposed to be Italian, but from the 80s, it kind of reminds me of the Italian kids. Kind of always had the it reminds me so much there. of uh, Ken Marino. That's what I always... Yeah, like a really young Ken Marino. You know, he's the young tough in, in his school uniform smoking cigarettes, and uh, he's trying to, you know, kind of impress Archie at the beginning of the scene, and then we find out, you know, Archie, you know, like lets it out. Because, you know, James keeps, you know, what about the picture? What about the picture? You don't really know what they're talking about. And finally, Archie's like, don't worry, it's safe. And then finally, he had enough of this guy's badger. And he's like, listen, uh, Janza, if you're going to jerk off in the toilet, at least close the door. So, you know, they have this incriminating picture, you know, Archie does or the vigils do, whoever took it. Uh, and they're, they're basically now pulling the strings on Janza, a school bully, to get him to do shit that they want. And uh, I thought this was a great moment to kind of impress Archie more because, you know, Janza wants, besides getting the picture back or whatever, he actually wants to be in the vigils. And he pulls this, like, much smaller kid, you know, he, like, starts bullying him and says, you know, hey, I'm out of cigarettes. Go buy me cigarettes. You know, I don't care if you're late for class or whatever. You know, I don't care if you have to steal the cigarettes. Get them, you know, and bring them back to me after lunch and all this. And then, you know, after the kid scurries away all scared, <laughs> like, I love that moment. Where he, where he's like, you know, it's kind of like that dumb, uh, you know, you know, I don't know, lackey moment. He's trying to impress Archie. He's like, he has the money, right? You think he has the money? Yeah, he's got the money. And Archie's just like, whatever. So I mean, you see now that like Archie is like very cruel or whatnot, but he doesn't mm-hmm. get off on just like straight up like brutality right. bullying. Well, I also took it like he probably looked at that moment and thought about how he was probably the one who was bullied like that in the past. Right. You know, so. He's not going to be impressed by the actions of the bully because he's just disgusted by it, too. Exactly. And here we I have to, like, because, uh, I think you said Wally Ward eventually became Wallace Langham or whatever. Right. And one of those actors who you just, I've seen in, like, a hundred things, you know, and, but, uh. He was, he was almost like an extra, he, but he was technically also in, uh, Weird Science in a few scenes as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, was, I think a lot of people know him from, like, CSI and stuff like that. Right, right. But man, he's man so young in this. I didn't even recognize him while I was watching it. Right. But uh, what a, you know, like I said, like I would be totally down for seeing what that character is up to now, just because it's such a it is a really complex and layered character. Yeah, and it's like you know, there's not too many people in real life that are like that, but there are some people like that that are like. I mean, Archie is highly intelligent and manipulative, and that you know when you do run across those people in your youth that are like. 17, 18 years old, and they're like that, like, you know, conniving and smart and shit. It's scary to run across somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And here we have, uh, th- I would say this is kind of the, you know, we- we've had the hints of it, but this is where um, Brother Leon starts getting really sleazy, I feel like. Because he's talking to the student, and he's kind of hinting around because the student, you know, wants to be on honor roll. Like, he's trying to get, like, a really good you know, resume, I guess, for college and whatnot. And I guess there was, like, one class he fucked up in and failed or got a bad mark, and he's trying to raise his grade. So Brother Leon kind of starts dangling shit in front of this kid, um, you know, to, to you know, get him to do it. But he's very manipulative. He brings up a Renault and, you know, why he's not selling the chocolates and 
and you know all that kind of stuff and uh you know he's basically pumping this information this kid for information like he's playing like he knows everything that's going on but at the same time like the kid kind of offers up um kind of you know what's been going on with Renault and why he's refusing the chocolates but uh the kid brings out you know the uh the information here that you know the vigils had given Renault assignment and uh you know like some of the kids know that he was an assignment and some of them don't and whatever but um uh what would you what would you say brother Leon does here he kind of He's, he, you know, he doesn't tell him to, like, go straight out and start putting the pressure on Renault, but he really tries to make it seem like Renault's the bad guy of the school now for not selling the chocolates. Oh, yeah, and it's definitely, like, he's trying to, like, I think he's also trying to get a sense from this kid of, like, what does the rest of the school think about it, you know, and how can I, like, manipulate this situation to the best of my advantage? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is like, literally, this is one of my favorite movies. I, I could very easily put this in my top ten of movies all the time. And probably a lot of people who haven't seen this movie and don't really know what it's like, uh, and don't really know why we probably like it so much, is you're like, oh, it's like, it's like big deal, the teacher, the, the principal's mad because some kid won't sell any fucking chocolate. But, like, the way this movie is, like, I think this is one of the... You know, as much as I like John Hughes movies, John Hughes movies, and John Hughes movies did bring a lot of realism into the kind of teen genre compared to movies that came before it. I think this is maybe, if not one of the most, maybe the most realistic high school movie I've ever seen, because like it really shows like the ugly side of you know growing up and mm-hmm. things you go through while you're maturing and being a young man, or you know. Well, that you, is the brilliance of the story, right? Like you said, like it's easy to just look at it and be like, "Oh, it's just about a kid who says no to selling chocolates at school." But I mean, I, I defy anyone to watch this and tell us like the ending isn't powerful, like the event, the eventual oh, yeah. message it gets to, and using that the just the chocolate sale something symbolic of something so much bigger. Yeah, and it's like, it's one of those movies where it's like, it's really a microcosm of kind of society and pressure and freedom and standing up for what you believe in and whatnot. But it's also, it's 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 not like some movies where it's purely just like a metaphor. Like, it also literally is like, you know, what could happen and, you know, what does happen in, in high school and schools. Yeah. Now, we just had another interesting moment where we're getting into, like, another one of these kind of, like, sequences that might be real, daydreams and that. And even the moment leading up to it before where uh, John Glover was, uh, Brother Leon is yelling Renault at the top of his lungs at him. I don't even know if that actually happened, you know, like, if that's part of it. And and here we have him making out with Jenny Wright, the leather jacket girl at the bus stop. And, like, at first you're like, is this happening? But then, like, the tip-off that it wasn't, you know, happening Mm -hmm. is he's wearing a leather jacket, too. And then... Uh, then they pan around and you see his mother's hospital bed like in the background and uh, here we get a replay of the brother Leon slapping Bailey in the face first they show a clip of him slapping Bailey but then we see it reversed where brother Leon slapping Renault in the face with the pointer and then kind of like celebrating yeah but I think this is a great scene too here because we're starting to like this, you know Renault's just riding the bus home and this this older kid I'm presuming a senior because he says he's been at Trinity for three years and you know he's 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 kind of giving Renault props here saying like yeah man like you know the whole school knows what you're doing you're not selling the chocolates it's awesome I've always hated them chocolates I hate doing it you know every year they shove that shit down your throat so like we're seeing at this point in the story that you know. Like, he does have some supporters at this time. You know, some people mm-hmm. are like, oh, it's so cool how he's kind of sticking it to the man, so to speak. 
I think this like this little scene right here is probably uh, Elon Mitchell Smith's best performance in the film because yeah. I can just he totally plays this. I, we've all been stuck in that situation. Someone keeps talking to you that you were just like, oh god, I don't care, <laughs> and just like the frustration on his face is like so real in this moment. Right, just leave me alone. Yeah. And of course, later he'll find out it's because you know at this point he's still like, look, I'm just doing what they told me to do. You know, so he's it. This guy coming up and telling him what a you know what an inspiration is, or this means nothing to him yet at this point. Yeah, because I mean, you know, the the assignment, even though some people know about it, like you know, or whatever, the word's gotten out. Like he can't say why he's doing it. He can't. Yeah. You know, that's part of the assignment or whatever. What do you think? Like, uh, flash flash yourself back to you know a little goat. Uh, do you think you would have wanted to be in the vigils? Uh, you know what? I don't think so. Cause I was, I was kind of in the, the Jerry and Gober camp. Like I kind of always question authority, not really authority for authority's sake, but like, I guess peer authority or peer groups that like really mm-hmm. weren't, you know, you know, in high school and stuff. Like I never really wanted to be a part of like a super large group or whatever, I mean, I could kind of see maybe the lore of the vigils if you went to this boring-ass boy school. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's like you do the little things. You kind of be on the inside of that, I guess, would spice up the boringness and mundaneness of the, you know, the boy school life. But I don't think I really would have craved it. What about you? Would you want to have been a part of it? No, I don't think so. And I, for me, it's kind of different because I was, I don't know, I guess I could say lucky enough to go to a high school that was a really large like class. Um, we were actually, we were two high schools together on one campus. Wow. And so you're graduating with like, you know, a thousand other students are, mm. you know, I mean, not, maybe not that much, but really, really high. And there wasn't, there was too many students for there to even be like a large group like that, you know? So there was definitely clicks, but it was kind of like, dozens and dozens of smaller clicks right and and i was always the kind i don't know if this is true of you too goat but i was always the kind of the kid who was smart enough to be like oh what i should do is i should make a couple friends in each of those groups right and then you just kind of float through so i was never like i was never picked on but i was never the cool kid either you know i was just like in that perfect middle where it's like hey i I know everybody and i get along with someone in each of these little groups it's strategic you know (laughs) Yeah, I actually had a very strange high school experience just because I went to, a, like, a rural high school. And um, it was kind of more like – because, like, I mean, I lived, like, ten, literally 10 miles from school. A lot of people lived even farther away. So it was, like, you didn't really bond. Like, you wouldn't you would never see, like, your classmates really, like, you know, out, like, at the mall or at the movies. Or, like, you just wouldn't really run into people or whatever like that. So, like, like my the, – there was really only, like – you know, two groups. There was basically the hit kids who grew up in that area, and then kids like me from the suburbs who, their parents, you know, bought a, you know, built a house or bought a house, like in what used to be farmland. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like it was very, and you know, even the little subgroups you would have, like like our like the jocks. It wasn't like they were purely the jocks because even the jocks were di- divided by some of the kids were kind of you know the more uh, poor or whatever farm kids or not literally farms, but you know, just rural kids. And the other ones would be kind of the more preppy suburb kids. So like, I never had like those really strong four or five different social groups in my school, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I never really, you know, 
there's a lot of bullying that went on in my school, but, and there's also, like, just, like, a lot of class warfare that went on in my school, like, people starting shit with, like, the other side of the people that they didn't really like, you know what I mean? That type of thing. Yeah. But here we have a great cameo. Yeah. Mr. Bud Court. <laughs> yeah. Another, pre- like, another person I just always like to see pop up, and it doesn't happen, you know, often enough, but... It totally makes sense that Bud Court is in this because watching this film, you get you just get the sense that I bet it's a pretty safe bet that uh, Keith Gordon is a huge Harold Maude fan. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, this just has a Harold Maude vibe throughout the whole thing, so I'm sure for him to get Bud Court to do this was probably, you know, such a thrill. Yeah, and basically, I, I guess a whole class here got a got a um, assignment that every time. Uh, Bud Court, I can't think of his brother name right now, but every time Bud Court says environment, because apparently um, Archie is sick of teachers saying the word environment all the time, just kind of like a, you know, a, a bradish thing to do. So he makes up this assignment. The class has to, like, get up and, like, dance around, like, basically do a version of the truffle shuffle almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every time uh, Bud Court says environment. So he catches on and he figures out what the word is, and he just says it over and over till these these poor little uh, douches wear themselves out and are sweating their, their balls off. I don't know if you noticed, like, on the, on the one chalkboard, he had a picture that said Modern Man, and it was, right. like, this little... He drew, like, this little yuppie. I want that on a T-shirt. Yeah, with, like, book. the tie and shit. Yeah. And what was important about that scene was afterwards, you see Doug Hutchinson, because he was in that class, he comes out all sweaty, and he's pissed at... Uh, at Archie for coming up with that assignment because now he's all worn out and he's all sweaty. Like, he's pissed, you know? And mm-hmm. Archie's just like, oh, well, you know, it's just that moment of uh, Archie's like, well, sorry, I got the fucking that, power and you don't, you know? That shit-eating grin of Archie, if this movie was more popular, that's like a gif waiting to happen. You know, <laughs> exactly. I can't believe that's not all over the place. Exactly. So now we're getting back to the nitty-gritty of the, the chocolate sale here with uh, Brother Leon talking to his treasurer kid. And that they're getting more into the, um, you know, the sales and how it's not going good. There's only like maybe five kids who've reached the quota of 50 boxes here. And like that's really bad news because, you know, uh, Brother Leon like overspent obviously. Like not only is he swinging for the fences trying to raise the money, but he's also put the uh, the school in a hole. Like mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the real fervor. You know, and it's all obviously in a power play to become the headmaster. But, you know, if if this chocolate sale doesn't work out and the school actually loses money on the chocolate sale, he's really, like, I'd say he probably would get fired, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, that's the that's the gist I get from it is that he spent the school's money in, a like, a really stupid way and now he needs to make up for it. I love this little moment, too, where he makes this kid read all 400 students yeah. and what they've sold. Yeah, it's, it's and, you know, the, the, we see the kid kind of wearing down here as he's starting to go down the list. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, I like the kid that only sold three because he's been out of school. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's take a moment here. Um, and this is only a DVD. I wish there was a Blu-ray that we could see the whole kind of color palette or whatever. But uh, this movie, another you know, I love it visually. But you, you know, there's a few where the fantasy sequences or the daydream sequences get really bright and colorful. But I have to say, I love the way this movie is shot and the way they shot this school, which. If you listen on the special features, kind of the reason they were able to make this movie for the budget was they got this entire huge school that was sitting empty. They rented it out for only five thousand dollars, 
But, uh, and obviously they didn't do a lot of art direction shit. They just used everything that was there sitting in this empty school. But I, I mean, like, for, you know, a drama that's about people basically talking about a chocolate sale or whatever, you know, from the moments that are handheld to even, like, shots like this, like, everything's framed well. The lighting is good. The lighting is a lot of times cold and kind of harsh, but without being overly, like, you know, obviously, uh, you know, fucked with or whatnot. What did you think about the way this movie looked, Tra? Yeah, it looks great. I mean, I, like I said, I, I'm with you in that. You had talked about it when you were telling me about the film, but I'm just blown away at, especially, like, I, I'll keep saying it, it sounds like a, like a, you know, a cliche or whatever, but as young as Keith Gordon is, uh, what, I mean, God, what an amazing directorial debut, you know? And I was just trying to think of, like, there's, I can't even think of, like, uh, an ancillary, like, scenario like that, you know? That would be like, um, who's some, like, like young actor today? Uh, oh, especially... Like that, I, that annoying I, I think kid from like Gordon was probably about what twenty four when he made this movie. Yeah, something like that. And the fact that they like a studio hired him, right? To oh, I don't know if it was a studio, but the fact that someone gave him money to make this kind of uh, adaptation of this, as you said, kind of a smaller idea novel, no big action sequences, or anything. it was just kind of like little intense drama. But put all the weight behind him, and uh, and he, as he says in the special features, pretty much left him alone too. That would that would never happen today. Well, besides the confidence of um, the producers, you know, and this was a new company, I guess, so I think maybe that's why they were willing to to uh, take a chance. But um, and this is his first directing thing. Like he had been involved in a short, but I don't even think he directed the short. The short. I'm trying to. I think it says like they they asked him to make a short just to see if he could direct. Yeah. I think is what he says on there, and so he did a little short just to kind of show what he could do. That right. it was more like a, it was more like a reel just for this. Yeah, if if the information I'm getting about his birthday is correct, uh, when he shot this movie, he probably would have been about 26. And, mm-hmm. like, besides just the way he made the movie so good, obviously, I think um, I think the fact that a guy that age wanted to do this source material, I think that mm-hmm. speaks a lot, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah, there was a little... And from that little scene of Gober and... Um, uh, uh, Jerry walking up there for some reason. I always place this as being like in Pittsburgh or something, but I've seen a lot of people say that they think it takes place in the Northwest. I'm not really sure where this, you know, I, I mean, I could look at where they shot it, but I'm not exactly sure story wise where it's supposed to, but it seems like a place that's really like rainy and cold a lot. You yeah, know? but it has that, you're right, it has that kind of industrial kind of, not ghost town, but like a town that's seen better days feel to it. Exactly. And there we had another, talk about crossing more lines, um, there was another scene of late, like a late night phone call, which is like, strikes me as very odd and crossing boundaries of, um, of, uh, brother Leon talking on the phone to, uh, to, uh, Archie and Archie's just kind of like, well, it's not my problem, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Archie kind of agreed to throw the vigil's weight behind this because, if it worked out, it would, you know, it's like this is the first time the vigils are getting actually acknowledged from someone who runs the school. And he's looking more for the long term of the power play of if Brother Leon is on the vigil side, you know, what more they can do and whatnot and kind of get away with. But at the same time, he didn't really like, because like Archie doesn't really have the, I mean, it's not like he's the leader who just shouts out and all the vigils, like, you know, like Adam Baldwin's character, he didn't want to get involved in this at all. Like, he knew how fucked it was from the beginning, you know what I mean? 
and now it's at the point where the sale's kind of going south. You know, more days and days are going by, and the chocolate's not really getting sold at a fast rate. So Yeah, well, it's great because there's this whole, like, parallel going on where this whole movie is about both Archie and Brother Leon, just everything they planned, spinning out of control and them losing, you know, control of everything they tried to set up. And kind of more great storytelling. Like, we start out with this late-night phone call, then we kind of do, like, a cutaway to a, a conversation between Archie and the treasurer kid, who, again, I'm not really sure if the treasurer kid is in the vigils or not. He might be in the background of those scenes, but he's at least feeding Archie the information about, you know, I think Brother Leon overspent and did all this. So then we cut back to the conversation, and we kind of see how you think normally, you know, Brother Leon being the authority figure would be bossing Archie around. But Archie, with this information of knowing how fucked Brother Leon is, he's kind of playing it cool. And now he's kind of, in a way, manipulating Brother Leon. You know what I mean? Like, he's mm-hmm. he's kind of got the power in that in that uh, relationship there. I feel like the, a lot of people who would, uh, like other directors and writers who would attempt to make this material... It would be really tempting to kind of play the whole chocolate sale thing really over the top right? and make it such a more broad satire of, like, politics and business and make it seem like, oh, so wink, wink, don't you see what we're doing here? And I like that Gordon plays it just more down-to-earth, realistic, but the actors sell it so much that you do think, like, like you just said, it's kind of silly to think that Brother Leon is freaking out this much about chocolates not right. being sold, but Glover plays it so well that you really buy exactly. into it. And not only that, but, like, you can also see, obviously, there's a situation of he's fucked if the chocolate doesn't sell. But you also see, like, him starting to realize, you know, because in the beginning of the movie, before this whole chocolate issue kind of came up, how, you know, kind of confident and boisterous he was of a character of, like, he kind of was the guy who ran the place, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And now he's starting to see that he doesn't have the power that he thought he did, you know? He can't just snap his fingers and, you know, make all this shit happen. And here we have, and that was a great little intro, this scene, Trev. Um, Archie's kind of hanging out in this old gymnasium that has, like, a stage in it and shit. But, like, they, like Gordon did, a, like, an awesome, like, like kind of pointing up at the, the ceiling. Like, mm-hmm. and then finally the camera pans down to see Archie there. But just seeing kind of, like, them old rusty <laughs> rafters and shit. Like, there is so much to say. And I know a lot of it is, I don't think, modern audiences, whether it's true or just what the directors think or what. But, like, you can't get a lot of really cool establishing shots anymore because, like, the, you know, every like these movies have to be so fast-paced now. But, like, there are just little shots here and there, like establishing shots, pieces that are in conversations, cutaway shots, whatever. There is so much, and it's so smartly done in just the right amount that kind of sells you on the environment and the atmosphere of this town, this school, just everywhere that they're at. That's what, like, when I watch this movie... Besides kind of getting wrapped up into the story and the characters and everything that's going on, the dynamics of all the relationships, like, it's one of those movies that, like, it works its way onto you to the point that you kind of feel like you're actually there at this place, if that makes any sense, while you're watching the movie. Yeah, and, like, talking about the establishing shots, and also, as you mentioned earlier, during the phone call, there was that cutaway to the discussion with the treasurer. And later on, there'll be like, there's other moments like this. And later on, there's a big one that I'll, if I remember, I'll point it out when we get to it. But the, the subtle playing with time, where he'll kind of right. intercut but with time, I love that kind of stuff. And it's it's something I wish I saw more in cinema. And I, I'm at a point now where I'm really into like um, just little breaks from reality when you watch a film, right. like something that kind of reminds you you're watching a movie or breaks you out of something. And I know some people resist that, but I actually think it's really powerful. On a, on a I don't know, it just does something to like your gut while you're watching something. 
And I like that Gordon was already figuring that out. It's almost too bad that Gordon is so, was such a strong director his first time out because yeah. we kind of we kind of lost him as an actor because I think right. he realized how good he was, you know. But uh, I mean, I don't blame him. I think it's more of a shame that nowadays he seems to be stuck only directing TV. I know because because I mean you can see it, and, I, and I've seen some of the other films he's directed, but I mean you could see it right away in this movie. Like, and I think that's probably why he transitioned from acting to directing was, you know, he. Um, he just has so much more of a vision. And, I mean, I love, like, the Rodney Dangerfield movie Back to School that he's in. Like, I love it. I have the Blu-ray and everything. And mm-hmm. he's great in it, the part he plays and everything. And, you know, even, like, The Legend of Billy Jean, which we just did. But you could tell, like, those small parts probably weren't creatively as satisfying. You know, that's probably why he made the jump to directing, I think. Yeah. And I'm sure the reason he's stuck in TV land now is because there's no real market for films like this anymore, exactly. which is too bad. I'm sure this is still what is where his heart is, is these kind of little strange but deep, you know, subtle stories. Yeah, and, like, I mean, sadly, there wasn't really – I think a lot of it had to do with MCEG being a small company and shit and not really knowing how to market or having the resources to market. But, unfortunately, this movie didn't really make a splash when it came out. Like, the budget is estimated at around 500000 which, by the way, I missed that from the 80s, the kind of blue-collar filmmaking, movies under a million bucks that actually looked like real movies and were mm-hmm. very thought. But, but it only grossed, I think, about 330000 And it came out on Laserdisc and videotape, so I'm sure it made, you know, another hundred, two hundred thousand, 200000 you know, maybe a little bit more. So, I mean, I don't think anybody lost their ass on this movie, but unfortunately it didn't do for, um, well, it didn't do for MCEG. They didn't really get paid back for taking a chance. And Gordon didn't really have his career blow up the, the way it probably should have after directing such a good first movie, I think. Yeah. So here we go. He went, on to, he went on to direct some other really strong films, though. I mean, have you seen A Midnight Clear? Oh, yeah. I, I actually have the UK import Blu-ray. It's amazing. I love yeah, it. It's, yeah, it's a great film. And then Mother, he did a, he did a, a fantastic Vonnegut adaptation, uh, Mother Night. That, you know what? That's the only movie he made that I haven't seen yet. i got to get on that for sure. Yeah, it's good. But here we have, you know, previous scene, we had Obi come in and explain to Archie that the cat's out of the bag. Some people think Renault is still doing the assignment because he's still refusing to sell the chocolates. Um, some people know the assignment's over. So it's like, it's like people know there's something fucky going on with the assignment here where it seems like before nobody ever had the balls to question a vigil's assignment. And now, you know, now it's making the vigils look bad because not only did they get involved with Brother Leon, but then they... You know, they got involved with Brother Leon and then this experiment of having this kid, Renault, which is really just Archie's, I don't know what you would call it, his cruelness, his cruel ego. You know, let's put this kid under a spotlight who's already, you know, just been through a tragedy and whatnot. Um, it actually ended up being really counterintuitive to what they were kind of working on with Brother Leon because... You know, like, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll have Renault refuse the chocolates for 10 days. He'll take some heat, you know, whatever. But then it will be over, and then the chocolates will get sold. But, like, you know, whether it's true or not, I'm not, you know, we don't know the reality of it. But uh, it's at least being perceived that, they're, that you know, kind of Renault's become the scapegoat now of the chocolate sale going to shit. So we have uh, him being pulled okay. back into the vigils meeting. When Archie's like very villainish here, how he sits on his lap and shit. Yeah, he's really creepy in this scene. Like, it, it, for, I, I really kind of this that scene reminds me of uh, Javier Bardem in Skyfall, <laughs> James Bond. It really, it really has that feel to it. But you know, they're telling him, you know, you have to sell the chocolates now. It's over. You know, they're kind of 
strong arm. We got a quick little cut in of him actually talking to the girl at the bus stop. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm pretty sure that little exchange was real. You know, he's kind of breaking the ice. Like, you know, I think this is kind of point in the story where, where Renault, you know, he was refusing the Chago sales part of the assignment. And then he's, you know, like, this is kind of his, you know, I don't know what you would say. His self-confidence building, I guess. His rebelliousness, you know, building. He's he's becoming a man standing on his own two feet more type of thing here. Yeah, I wonder, that's a, that's a, one of the primary reasons I want to read the book is to see how much inner monologue there is for Jerry, to see if we get a, more of a sense of the thinking behind him deciding to keep saying no. I mean, I think it comes across well enough in the movie, but I'd like to read like maybe a little bit more about, about that decision of his. Exactly. And here we have like the bullying is really starting. He's getting phone calls all hours of the night, and it's always just somebody laughing on the other end. And, you know, eventually it's waking his dad up too, so it's like becoming embarrassing. <sighs> His locker at school has melted chocolate. It looks like shit, but it's actually the chocolate smeared all over inside of it. All his stuff ruined and whatnot. And um, I think probably, this is my take on it. I think it's probably the vigils doing all the bullying at this point. But I think they're trying to kind of, you know, Renault probably knows too. But they're trying, I think they're trying to make the appearance be like the whole school is really against them at this point. Mm-hmm. And see, Renault kind of, like, not going along with the things. You know, it's like one thing when you have that extreme authority and then one person questions it or makes you look bad and get away with it, then everybody wants to. And now we're here, we have a kid named Bolo, probably a senior kid, uh, kind of headstrong kid. And uh, he's getting, trying to get, they're trying to give him an assignment or trying to fuck with him doing something. And he's like, he's not having it. And, like, he's completely making a me- uh, mockery out of the uh, vigils meeting. Yeah. In their secret place. I'm surprised they should have. Uh, I'm surprised this isn't the kid that was on the bus earlier. That seems like it would have made sense. Right. Well, I think that kid was kind of more of like a nerd who wanted to do what Renault was doing. And I think Bolo mm-hmm. was more like, was always naturally kind of the kid who was more like what Renault's becoming. You know what I mean? I like that. I want to just, uh, I want to see a whole movie about Bolo. Yeah, Bolo would be great. Bolo, Bolo. It's like, you can totally spin it, too, where, like, he's, like, the cool guy of the movie before he gets beat up by Adam Baldwin here. So, like, it's like fucking Bolo's, uh, uh, like, make it in the vein of Ferris Bueller's Day Off and 3 O'Clock High. It's, like, this really epic adventure, but it's, like, Bolo's Big Friday or something. It's just, like, a day in his life at the school. But, yeah, Adam Baldwin finally has enough. You know, he is the, the muscle of the vigils. You know, he, they, they try not to flex it too much, but he finally has enough. and beat, doesn't really beat the shit out of him, but, you know, gives Bolo a good punch and shuts his mouth up, you know. And now this is where it's like, you, you know, like Baldwin's really getting in the face of Archie here in front of all the vigils, you know. And this kind of, you know, where they lay it out, like, Archie, you fucked up. A, you got us involved in the Chaga sale. B, you know, now you got us in this whole Renault mess and whatnot. It's making us look like shit. Which, Adam Baldwin's not a guy you want, like, hovering over you and, no. you know, dressing you down. So even, like, a, this young version of it, he's, look, he was probably, like, super intimidating when he was, like, 10, I bet. Yeah, I mean... The what was that movie? My Bodyguard. My Bodyguard. Yeah. Yeah. This came out. That came out probably what a, a good solid four years before this, and and he was a big motherfucker then. I love this part where Obi brings up this sign that he uh, 
that you know, he found. He said, you know, I came out of the bathroom and period just started, so somebody didn't have time to have it up much long. But just like a big paper science that screw the chocolates and screw the vigils or something like that. So, I mean, it's like, I, you, I know it sounds silly to people who haven't seen the movie, but I like how shit like that, like, you know, shit like that is, like, a big deal. Like, everything's so serious when you're a teenager. that But do you emotion. think that, uh, so I kind of, when I saw this, I kind of, in my head, wondered, do you think Obi drew that sign? Because you know, I feel like he's already starting to feel like uh, Archie losing his power, and he's already seeing an opportunity, you know, presenting itself. You know what? I think you're, I actually, I, I think you're 100% right about that. Because, you know, all these times I watch this movie, like, you've seen it before, like, just, just before when he's pissed about, um... When Archie made him jump all around and do that stupid truffle shuffle gimmick and all that uh, prank, and uh, you see him like you know, like he's he's sick of Archie's shit already. So yeah, I, I think that's actually I think it's probably ninety nine percent sure he made that fucking sign. And finally, Archie's had enough of it, you know. And, and and this is kind of, you know kind of how um, Glover had that opening part about Nazi Germany in this classroom and shit. I think this is uh, right here is Archie's moment to sign because everybody's like you know nobody else has really like figured out what you know what's the light at the end of the tunnel of the situation. You know we're in bed with Brother Leon. We don't want to be Renault's fucking up the chocolate sale, which is fucking us up with Brother Leon. You know, and this this shows that Archie's the smartest one. You know. I love this kind of little mini monologue he gets here about how we're going to make it the coolest thing to sell chocolates. And everybody's like, but that's not going to work. It's not cool to sell chocolates. But he tells him, you know, and this is where you see Archie really has the mind to be a master manipulator here. Ex- mm. Explaining how, you know, they're going to make it. I love that. He says, Hutchins is like, it won't work. And he's like, no, but they will. They will. They will. Like... I love how he's like, we see why he's kind of in charge of the vigils or whatever he is or why he has so much powers because he's totally like addressing them here and like giving a great speech. Archie could basically grow up to be Kevin Spacey's character in House of Cards. This could just be like a prequel to that. (laughs) House of Archie. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say this is the only moment in the movie where I think it takes like a little bit of a stumble and nothing major, but we'll, we'll cut to a montage here of the chocolate sale starting to escalate because of Archie's plan. But it doesn't really show how they made selling the chocolates right. seem cool, you know. Like that's it seems like that little bit is kind of missing information. I mean, that montage too is like it's like one like the first time I watched this movie, like I liked it, but then when I saw that montage, like it really sold me on it. But um, I I see what you're saying, I, but I think I think maybe what it was was like they weren't openly, and you kind of have to assume this, but. The vigils weren't really openly in favor of the chocolate sale at this point. Like, they kind of, you know, like, this is the point now where, like, you know, you can't be a little bit pregnant. You kind of got to shit or get off the pot. And, like, I just think they probably used their influence because the montage, like, they're all, like, like they're not the older high school kids like the vigils. Like, a lot, like three-fourths of the kids in the montage selling the chocolates, they're, like, all the younger kids. You know what I mean? Like, the 12-year-olds and shit. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But this montage is great, too, besides having, like, awesome Peter Gabriel song, uh, I Have the Touch in it. It's like a remix of I Have the Touch. Um, we get more of the uh, kind of layout of this town, and, like, there's a few nice places and shit. You get a little bit here of them just, like, ganging up on the kids, I guess, who won't sell the chocolate. 
But like when he gets like it starts getting to the point where that kid's like raiding his own fucking piggy bank <laughs> to to buy his own chocolates, you know what I mean? And like they are like kind of you know hitting the pavement, beating the feet here. It's like and you see him hounding people on the street and shit. There's a kid making a list everybody in his family can sell to. But um but yeah, like like I just I just think it really like like it's about the peer pressure. It's like everybody's doing it. Like I think if Archie and like all the rest wrestler vigils are like, oh yeah, I'm doing it all the time, man. Like I, you know, just like anything, like whether it's drinking or doing drugs or whatever in high school, as long as it, you know, it's like that's the most overphrased used in high school. I think, don't you think, Trev? Everybody's doing it. <laughs> oh yeah. And these by kids- the way, I'm kind of I'm pretty fascinated by that like triangular building that that one guy oh, yeah. is knocking at the door. Is that like a house? I don't just so- you know. I always thought it was like some little shit bug house. But if you look at that scene, like, they kind of show, in one of the shots, maybe not this shot, right, but the one they showed earlier, you kind of see a, uh, this is a great shot, too, of the log yard. But uh, in one of the shots, you can kind of see, like, a, um, like, like on the outskirts of the house, there's, like, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like, uh, like a, a wooden bumper rail that's painted yellow. Like, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, don't back up, don't, don't go over. Like, maybe there's like a little hill there or something. So I'm pretty sure it was a business, like some kind of weird, maybe like a photo developing business or something. And there was some weird, like almost industrial lights on the top that you probably wouldn't see on a house, like to light yeah. that parking lot. Oh, here, here, here. <laughs> I love the scenes here where everybody. I guess it's just like the cool kids or maybe the vigils. Like, they sell their chocolates by just dumping the chocolates onto uh, other kids. So, I mean, oh, here's another kid going into his uh, his mom's purse to get the money. It's always the young kids that are either using their piggy bank money or the uh, just stealing out of their mom's purse to get the chocolate sale going, you know. What about that? Did you ever steal money from your parents as a kid? I did, but it was always like two bucks at a time. Yeah. And it was the kind of thing if, like, if they were around and I asked, I, they would give it to me anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I love that. That's an amazing edit because that the Peter Gabriel song, it kind of ends on, like, a drum breakdown, like a do 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 And then, like, you know, the, the audio track of the movie goes from that do 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 to just hard cut into Archie throwing his arms up in victory and, like, the whole school cheering. So it's like do 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 rah, like a whole roar. Like, I think that's, like, the best cut in just about any movie I've ever seen. And here we go. We're starting to... This is where we find out now, like, it, like it's all kind of a fucking hoax. Because mm-hmm. they're... Well, I guess the chocolate sale isn't really over at this point. But it's like, you know, they're, like, coming down the home stretch, so to speak. And uh, the, what tips it off was there was, like, a moment earlier where... Um, where somebody was, like, starting to speak up. Maybe it is here where Adam Baldwin's, like... Uh, yeah, because they in the the scene before Gober, they say, "Oh, you've been stuck on twenty seven for the week, and he's not selling them. He's not into the shit anymore." And then you see the vigils. Uh, Adam Baldwin congratulating him. Oh, you sold all fifty of your chocolates. And Gober's like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Like, what's yeah. going well, on?" Yeah. Well, even in the moment, even in the moment before that, that other student, he was about to say, "Like, well, that's not how yeah. many I sold." But. Yeah, Bailey was going to speak up and say, "Well, I, you know, when the numbers are being announced, you know, I didn't sell." So obviously, the numbers are getting really fake and really cooked and. Where's the money coming from? Where's the chocolates going? We don't know. It's just, you know. All right, here we have this shit that really sets up the end of the movie. 
And this is the bully Janza, who Archie has a picture of jacking off. Uh, he, you know, he's been set up by the vigils, blackmailed, I guess you could say, by the vigils to start fucking with Renault. Because at this point, Renault still won't sell the chocolates. Like, it's not really, like, the problem that it was, but he's still kind of flying in the face of the vigils, you know, wishes and demands, so he's got to be dealt with. And I got to say, this is, like, a really good scene that, like, I think between Janza and um, uh, Jerry here, like, like, this just reminds me of so much shit I saw. And the the kind of, if you notice, Trev, the camera keeps spinning around. Keeps spinning around them, yeah. It's like, if you see this on a big screen, you need one of those, like, Cloverfield warnings on the theater doors. But the reason it keeps spinning around in, like, a 180 thing is I finally realized it watching it for, like, the hundredth time. It's because there's a bunch of moms up in the windows of the houses that are watching them filming. (laughs) And when I saw the first one, I was like, well, that's interesting. And I knew it was just a woman watching them film. But I was like, you know, you could kind of explain that away that, you know... Some lady is just like, what's going on out here? And being nosy. But then they like swung to another side in one of the cuts. And you saw on the, on another house, there was another mom up in the window. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, basically, this is typical high school. Uh, this is all my high school was. Like, this is my high school experience right here. It was people running around accusing everybody of being gay. I yep. was accused of being gay. All my friends were accused of being gay. Everybody else was accused of being gay. Um Everybody who was accusing people of being gay, they were being accused of being gay because it's like, how come all you talk about is being gay? Like, that's all go, going to high school in the '90s. I think you went to high school in the late '90s. I went in the mid '90s. It's all high school was back then. Who's gay? Who's gay? Yeah. And it was like, and of, it was like the Red Scare or something. People were really right. Like, well, and of course, and and off, often in like here too, the the bully accusing him of being gay was what. There's a picture of him masturbating in a closet in a kid's in an all-boys high school. He seems to have this kind of, you know, you could call it like a crush on Archie. So there's kind of a question there about this character, too. Yeah, Janza. I mean, you never, I don't think you, I mean, Janza doesn't have a lot of screen time, but, like, he's never with a girl. He's never, you know what I mean? Yeah. He never. You see his gang is a bunch of young boys. (laughs) Yeah, like, literally, like, nine-year-olds. But there's probably, like, what, about a dozen of them? Mm-hmm. And they all attack Jerry and beat him up and stuff. And, you know, I kind of wish we could have seen, like, the entirety of this. We kind of just get the montage of the tiny baby fist punching him and shit. But do you think he wasn't fighting back because he was afraid? Or he just was like, what am I going to do against all these little kids, you know? Right. Yeah. Plus, all just the, sh- the shock of it. You know? Yeah. It's like, what the fuck's going on? And it, it's over I think that's, quick. like, getting spit on the face, though. That's, like, worse to me than getting punched by a bunch of, like, nine-year-olds. Oh, yeah. Like, Janza, like, hawks a big loogie right in his eye. And this is kind of, like, I, I, will, I will give uh, Mitchell Smith some credit here. Just, like, that, I think that's when he's the best in these in, in this movie is when he's really not even saying anything. When he's just kind of emoting. And, and Gordon did a good job showing these little scenes like this, too. Mm-hmm. Where you can tell he's just kind of retreating into himself. Like, he's got really nobody at this point. Like, like Gober is still his friend and, and, you know, agrees with what Jerry's doing, but it's not like he's really openly supporting him at school or anything like that. And, they, and of course, we have the millionth phone call that, you know, when he picks it up, it's just going to be fuckers laughing. But I love I, that he has a steering wheel just, like, on his wall. Yeah. Like, that, you know, I, that, I think that's kind of legit, though, because I remember as a kid back then... Like, there wasn't as much prefabricated shit to decorate your room and stuff. So you just would take anything that was halfway cool and put it in your room, you know what I mean? 
So here we get a, and I thought this was a genius scene here. We get a close up of Jans's face. The phone rings. He picks it up. It's Archie. You know they're going over. Uh, you know, you know how did it go and all that kind of shit. Like you know your fight with uh, Renault. and um, you know he explains why well, I didn't beat you know, him. The little kids did, and Archie's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Like, just, but I love that it's like you start out Jans's face, close up. The camera slowly pans back, and now we really kind of you know I mean. Renault, Jerry Renault doesn't live in some palace. He just lives in a normal kind of old, slightly rundown house. But we see, we see Janza here, and we see that like you know, especially when they cut back to um, Archie's room, like we see like Janza really lives like he's just in a kitchen, but it's really almost like squalor like and shit. Just yeah. Well, there's everywhere. some great little details. Like even the phone is duct taped together or has right. electrical tape on it. Right. There's like that that nasty looking bottle of ketchup, that mm-hmm. half empty bottle of ketchup there. There's like two little hillbilly kids playing on the floor and sitting. Yeah, there. and like, a lot of uh, a lot of Jesus imagery too. So you, you yeah. get the sense he probably has a very strict mother. You know, right? Just like little details you can uh, you can uh, convey with small uh, visuals like that. And like I, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as call it stereotypical or anything but like it really is like a perfect like you know like that like at least when i grew up that like that's kind of like the life that all the neighborhood like your local hood had you know what i mean like your mm-hmm. your your fucking local bully your local goon <laughs> there's also just something to be said for how real it looks too and right. and like the kind of production design you got back then it kind of reminds me of um i'm sure you've seen river's edge oh yeah i have the blue but like but like how real all the houses in that look, and right. like the, the kids' environment, and now you know there's a, always this propensity to make everything look so uh, filmic and cinematic today. But I, I mean, that's what people's houses look like, you know. Yeah, and especially back then. I mean, it, you know, I feel like people have gotten like a little more with it now, like working class people in terms of their living space. But I remember the time when everybody had like, especially if you lived in an older house, they had old rundown paint and shit the way Jane's ahead there. Now, I will admit, the first time this moment started, they showed Archie standing in front of that green screen. I thought it was like a mistake. Like, they forgot to, like... (laughs) Yeah, tell me what you think about this being fresh to this movie, just watching it, you know, a couple days ago, whatever. It's basically this montage of the characters of the film, uh, you know, minus Jerry, because this is obviously his daydream. But it's, it's, I like, this really popped out to me when I first saw the movie. Yeah, it's it's so unlike anything else in the movie, right? We have other, like, dream sequences, but this one is, it's so colorful and it's so um, dynamic. But it also, it hit me as, like, it really looked like an 80s music video. Right. So I'm sure that's, like, kind of the influence Gordon's pulling in. Like, it felt suddenly like we're in a, a Peter Gabriel or Talking Heads video. Yeah, and it's just the characters standing in front of these bright backgrounds, like a green screen, a blue screen, a white screen, and the characters are talking, but it's they they dubbed in the other actors' voices saying the lines. Like it's very kind of off putting and creepy, and I love that little flash we got of the fantasy of Jerry being in front of the class, and like you think he's whipping Brother Leon in the face with a pointer, but when the face turns around, it's actually Archie in the robe. I thought mm-hmm. that was a great kind of little symbol, you know. And then, and then, kind of, this is the point now where everybody has legit turned on uh, Jerry because we saw him at the bus stop. It's actually the, that shot is actually the bus stop shot was actually the cover of the DVD, not of the theatrical poster. The theatrical poster is just like uh, in Laserdisc cover. It's just like Jerry sitting in a um, like just classroom all by himself. But yeah, we see like literally the kids are sneering at him and like. Like, you had to look close, but I think it was, like, one of the kids that were supporting him early on. Renault tries to say hi to when he walks into school, and, like, even that kid totally blows him off. Yeah. 
Here and it's pretty like it's what it's pretty telling, right? That's when you get the the power of the vigils that you can make the whole school turn on someone for bucking against the teachers, right? right? Like how crazy is that that they're like, oh, you don't want to do what the teachers want to do? Well, we all hate you then. Exactly. Talk about brainwashing. And here, here we have Renault finds his locker like completely empty, like nothing in it, like. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a picture of his mom in there that's gone now, and I think that's like yeah. so it's like so sad, right? But it's yeah. again, it's like. The movie doesn't dwell on that, but if you've noticed that detail earlier, then it's like, wow, that's they even took the picture of his dead mom. Yeah, fucking ghouls. And here we have this is finally. You won't have to hear us talk about the chocolate sale anymore. This is the chocolate sale is finally over now. The school treasure, because like we said, just money was coming in and shit wasn't really being sold and all that, but somehow the money was coming in. We had the treasure going over. You know, you know, it's over, brother Leon. We saw all the boxes. Brother Leon is like really elated obviously he's like oh thank god but the treasurer says there's something wrong though like oh there's a you know every year there's a couple boxes that go missing or stolen or whatever but this year there's exactly 50 boxes missing and he says it's renault's 50 and i mean like that obviously is like telling that the whole thing was rigged i mean obviously brother leon doesn't give a shit and he really doesn't care here at all he's Mm -hmm. just you know he's like i don't give a shit about the silly games i don't care about renault whatever but, I mean, what did you think about, like, I thought it was pretty telling, the scene that the kid's trying to explain to him, like, something's going on here, Brother Leon, and, like, Brother Leon does not give a shit whatsoever. Yeah, well, like I said, it's, 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 this is the moment where you realize that this is all, like, some kind of strange plan, and it's all right. bullshit, because, I mean, earlier we saw, like, look, Archie had a box at that little meeting with Renault that he was eating. Right. Um, we know for sure, like, they used boxes to kind of, you know, put the chocolate in Jerry's locker. Right. There's no way there would be exactly 50 boxes missing, right? No. And plus, you can't even figure, it's not like there would have been exactly 20,000 boxes to sell anyways. Right. So, yeah, it's obviously, this is all a setup. Yeah. You know, the the books are cooked, so to speak. And here we have, you know, like they kind of set up earlier that, um, that, you know, they always get a reward, like, you know, to, uh, you know, yeah, just a reward that the chocolate sale, you know, they did well or whatever. And, um, you know, like, I guess the year before or whatever, they, um, they, they got like a day off school and then. They got to go on a trip to New York or whatever. And, like, here's where they're starting to plan. Uh, Archie and Obi are starting to plan out, like, what should the reward be, you know, this year or whatever. And Archie's kind of laying out the thing that they're going to do a rally. And, you know, Renault's going to be there. And Obi's going, like, why would Renault be there? Like, he didn't take part in the sale, you know. Mm-hmm. And Archie even, you know, said something to Obi. Okay, old buddy. And then. You know, Obi finally. Obi's starting to even talk back now. I'm not your old buddy, Archie. But here we see Archie's whole like master plan coming together, and you do have to wonder again, like, well, did he originally tell Renault, like, look, even when I tell you, start saying yes, still keep saying no, because really, it all this all depends on Renault saying no all the way to the end, right? Exactly. So I like that that question still hangs over it of like, what exactly was jerry's original assignment like how far did it it pull like how far did the vigils part of it go and how much of it was him taking a stand so here here we have the the assembly um they like they had pitched it to uh brother leon as being a football rally 
Brother Leon's like, oh, yeah, that's a great cheap-ass reward to give you fuckers for, for basically giving me a, a big promotion, like, whatever. And But, the, you know, they say, like, but we want it to be students only. Brother Leon's like, okay, I don't care. So they set this thing up. And we're kind of getting the flash forwards here. It's not exactly Yeah, this is, this is the moment I was talking about. Like, I love yeah. that the fact they show him st- standing in the ring, and then we go back and, and build back up to it. Yeah. And, you know, they're kind of, you know, the real plan is to have this, like, dummy boxing match. And I guess they're going to make more money on top of it by raffling off tickets. But the raffle is, like, very weird. It's it's not for a prize. It's uh, it's not a regular boxing match. It's, like, basically you buy a raffle ticket. And the two guys that are going to be in the match are uh, Janza and uh, Jerry Renault. Um, it's kind of just the part of the movie here where the plans still come together. You're still uh, seeing what's happening. Um like Archie calls Renault and shit. And, um, but basically what it is, is Renault and Janza are going to stand in the ring, you know, cause obviously Jerry wants revenge for Janza doing that shit to him, you know, and Janza wants to beat Renault up to please the vigils or whatever. But you buy a raffle ticket, you pick the guy who's going to throw the punch and you get to pick what kind of punch it is like an uppercut, a jab or whatever. And uh, the thing that's fucked about it is you can pick whoever you want. And obviously, the thing that's really fucked about it for Renault is everybody hates him at the time. So, like, nobody's really going to buy a raffle ticket for him to punch back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, also, I got the idea that, like, if your, if your punch is the one that ends the fight, like, if it knocks someone out, you win the, the raffle. Oh, yeah, probably. And every, yeah. obviously, everyone thinks that, like, Janza is the tougher of the one. So. Right. You're, That's true. It's a it's a better bet for you to bet on a like an uppercut from Jans or something because that probably will knock out Jerry. I love the reality of this scene. Um, uh, Archie's like talking to uh, Renault on the phone, and like like you know you could play this like okay here here is the the villain of the movie, and it's also debatable who's the real villain. You know, is it Janza? Is it Archie? Is it Brother Leon? But I mean, you have Archie kind of doing his thing here and i love how like uh wally ward does the thing of like he's like picking out like a little zit on his arm as he's doing it so it's not like he's sitting there like this is what's going to happen or not like you know he's being real casual and he just like to me that's kind of (laughs) like archie like how fucking you know bad he is Mm mm-hmm Yeah, here they are asking Brother Leon if they can have a football rally. I love Brother Leon's chair. It's just such yeah. a throne, you know. It is. <laughs> Talk about Game of Thrones here at this fucking school. <laughs> yeah. I, and I actually like John Glover in this role because, like, uh, this moment here, because you can see his personality. Like, he's going back to how he was in the beginning of the movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's got, he's, like, that fake smarmy friendliness that's totally not genuine you know what i mean yeah i think he's also happy too because right he told archie originally like yeah i'll think of something else to give you guys and if they're like gonna put on their own rally he's like ah it saves me the trouble you know? exactly fuck you so here here we get to the um you know archie's in the ring with the uh, janza or not we're kind of caught up to real time now here pretty much and um excuse me and uh, we see the crowd in, like, pretty much, I don't know if the whole school, it seems like more like the older boys, like the older grades, but, like, there's there's at least 150 kids there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, the Good. school school's supposedly 400 kids, but, th- that you know, some of that's younger kids who obviously wouldn't be here in 
you know, late at night or whatever. But it's a lot of kids to be together with no adult anywhere. Mm-hmm. And they set up this, like, makeshift tiny boxy ring. It's really just ropes and, like, it's pretty realistic. It looks like the kids put it together themselves out of, like, a tent or something. Yeah. Now, here we do get to the moment, though, right where the, the movie starts beginning to deviate from the novel. Right. And, I mean, I can't fully judge it because I haven't read the book. But, I, like, I, I think this ending is, like, much more... I don't know. It seems much more powerful to me than the ending of the book or whatever. Well, I mean, it definitely feels more of a movie ending because it gives you the semblance of something of a happy ending, but still with, like, the kind of cynical... It's so bittersweet. Oh, right. Whereas reading the, the ending of the book, it's like, geez, that's just like, there's no hope. You know, right, it's like yeah. such a such a downbeat ending, which I've heard is what Cormier is kind of known for. Right. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Gordon made the right choice in changing it just for this version of the story. Yeah, so here we have... Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, Archie's talking about, you know, like you said, the knockout punch. You know, the mm-hmm. raffle tickets are too two dollars each but if your knockout punch wins like your ticket wins like you win two hundred dollars yeah and archie's talking about look at him the greed of it and all that and the commands and all that like he's really proud of what he put together here he's telling adam baldwin here and it kind of should be right i mean as as awful as it is it is kind of genius like the the machiavellian aspect of everything he's done you have to kind of hand it to him on a certain level but there's also a level of self-loathing like like, I feel like Archie knows what he is, but he doesn't mm-hmm. take glee in it. Because he even has, like, a line towards the end there where, where he's explaining how kind of fucked up this whole situation is. And he's talking about, you know, we, we all do it and we all enjoy it because we're bastards. You know, it's beautiful. And, like, I don't know. Like, uh, like I'm so curious about Archie and, like, what he's been through and why he is the way he is. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that's one thing is... Archie's home life, we only see him in his bedroom all by himself, and it's a very kind of clean and sterile bedroom and whatnot. It's, you know, we've got some, like, things on the wall that have, like, some butterflies in them and stuff, but it's very clean. It's, you know, it's like a, it's the only part of the movie that's like a movie bedroom or a movie kind of trope. Like, you know, 80s movies, teen movies, everybody had a cool-ass bedroom. And and Archie's is very pared down compared to other movies, but, it, it you know, it, he... I don't know. He just clearly is in like a different headspace in a different class than everybody else in this movie. Well, I know I said earlier I made the House of Cards joke, but Archie could also be like the young teenage Patrick Bateman. He really could be. Just that clean, sterile look. His bed's always made, and just everything. There's like no junk. It doesn't look like he really owns anything. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we have the kicker, Trev. You want to talk a little bit about the Marvels? Yeah, so now we we return to the marbles from earlier, and we re, we are reminded that whoever makes an assignment has to pick them themselves, and uh, as long as they pick the white one, you know they're they're okay. The the person they gave the assignment to still has to go through with it. But here, I guess I don't know. It's it's interesting that Archie never thought that this would come back at him, right? right? But this time they make him pick two marbles since there are two people in the ring, exactly. and of course he does end up picking a black one, and he ends up having to get in the ring himself with Renault. Because he has this luck that he never picks the black marble, so he never has to do the dirty work himself. Mm-hmm. But big surprise, this time he pulls out the black marble. Now, i got to say, I did, do you think that was a setup? I think there was probably mostly black marbles in there. Oh, yeah, could be, yeah. 
Especially if oh, if like if Obi got to put that box together, right. then oh yeah. <laughs> well, because the way the box is, he kind of has to like reach around it, so he never sees into it. And you know, Adam Baldwin, who I guess his name was Carter, I saw it on so there's Carter. He really hasn't been down with Archie's bullshit for a long time either. Yeah. So I almost feel like they both. It was like a dual setup right there to kind of get Archie out of power because that's better for them as well. It's better for the crowd, though, too, you got to say. I mean, if this was Janza versus Jerry, one punch probably would have ended it. Here you get a much more compelling fight. Yeah, and I I think, you know, Jerry does get a few raffle ticket punches in on, on, you know, what would have been Janza. And you got to think, like, well, obviously Janza's bullied a lot of kids. Maybe there there was, you know, a few that would, you know, pick. Even if they think they weren't going to win the raffle or whatever, you know, they just want to see Janza get get punched. But, I mean... Mm -hmm. Tickets have already been sold. Nobody knew it was going to be Archie in the ring. But, um, Art, you know, right right off the bat, they start reading off the raffle tickets, and obviously it's stacked. Um, so Archie gets the punch, uh, Jerry, a bunch of times here. And that's gotta, a nice little bit of mo- like acting for Mitchell Smith, too, though, where he's that little smile on his face, like, oh, yeah. that's as hard as he can hit. This is going to be fine, you know? I mean, but, he, then it just, but then it just keeps escalating. It's like Archie throws a good punch in terms, I mean, it's like, if this guy got to punch you 30 times in the face without you, like, whatever, like, you would feel it, but mm-hmm. he really doesn't hunt hard. Like, like I mean, Jerry, he, he, he can take these punches and keep going for a while. Like, it's not like he's going to get knocked out. See, Renault finally, and, and Archie's, like, shocked that he's going to get punched. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, whereas I would say uh, Archie's punches on Jerry kind of just snapped uh, Renault's head back. Like, uh, Archie almost went down there. He cannot take a punch at all. No. So basically what's happened is the next punch is supposed to be some kind of punch to the face. And basically uh, Archie just, like, he, I can't tell really exactly if he knees or just punches Renault in the balls. And then Renault's like, well, you're not following the rules. Fuck this. And he gets pissed and he actually starts unloading on Archie. And it actually, now it becomes a real boxing match. Yeah. And I don't even think at that, I don't, after that, Archie doesn't even get a punch in. Renault hits him about four or five good times. And then here comes the knockout blow, which actually sends a couple of uh, Archie's teeth going, flying out, blood flying out. And uh, Archie's knocked out. So here we have like, and this is why I love this movie, Trev, is, like, in a lesser 80s movie, this would be the happy ending. Like, yay, Archie got knocked out. All right. And I love how Gordon, as a director, plays on that. You know, after going through all this shit, you know, standing up with his own free will, going going against the peer pressure and the bullshit and all this, this is, this is Renault's, you know, triumphant moment. Everything he's endured, you know, these people making a mockery out of, like, him mourning the loss of his mom and all that kind of stuff. You know, and he is initially cheered, and it's great, and the the crowd is cheering, and um, then then kind of you know, the bittersweet because he looks over and sees um, uh, Obi and and Carter uh, cheering him, and I do think that part is real, don't you? Or, oh yeah, I do too. Yeah, I yeah. think they're very happy to see Archie get knocked out. So, and then kind of the first moment of like, oh, maybe this isn't a happy ending is Jerry sees Gober in the crowd and Gober's just like, he's just like so numb and cold, kind of mortified about seeing this happen. Cause he knows, mm-hmm. he knows, um, 
uh, Renault just got played here and totally, you know, it's like he won, but nah, he was really a puppet. And now this is the first part I think, Trev, that's kind of starts going into the fantasy because you see Janza and brother Leon standing together and everybody yeah. loves it. And I mean, first of all, I don't think Janza would be happy about it <laughs> at all, <laughs> but especially brother Leon, because, you know, if Archie's not in power, that's, that was who he made the deal with, you know? Yeah. And then we have the great shot of in darkness and then a little kind of key light comes up and we see, you know, now we know a thousand percent this is kind of going into a daydream. Our, uh, Renault sees his mom in the crowd crying. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually she's gone and it's just, you know, a thing. Now, do we want to mention here what what's the even more depressing book version of this? Yeah, go ahead and th- throw it out there. So in the in the book, uh, the whole thing with the marbles doesn't happen, right. and uh, Archie never takes the place of Janza, and the fight is left the way it is, and Janza just beats the shit out of Jerry. Um, yeah. And so the I mean the, the the book really has this message of like everything Jerry went for, through was was for definitely nothing. for nothing, yeah. yeah. And he really just gets like destroyed at the end, and uh, really nobody, none of the villains kind of face any repercussions. Yeah, they all they they completely get away from it. Whereas here. Um, you know, it kind of time dissolves into, um, you know, everybody else is gone and Renault's still standing in the ring and his friend Gober is there talking to him and Renault just says, you know, I should have sold the chocolates anyway. I just ended up playing their game, you know, mm-hmm. which I mean, I have to say like this ending hit me hard. I mean, it still hits me hard every time I see it, but especially the first time and, and kind of this great shot of, then we see Obi and, um, Archie st- sitting in the, in the, you know, it's nighttime. They're sitting in the stands. And uh, then Renault and Gober fade away from the middle of the ring. And then, then you know, it kind of fades from night to day. The ring's gone. And it's just, obviously, it's a time lapse to, you know, whenever, the next week, two weeks later. And I thought that was an amazing shot. Because don't you think the actors probably had to sit there exactly still <laughs> until the light came <laughs> up and they took all that shit? Because, I mean, when it dissolves, it's obviously one shot dissolving to another. But, like... Their positioning is perfect. It doesn't even waver yeah. a little bit. And it's obviously not an optical effect because this movie didn't have it. But here here we have it. And, and I think this is I think this is a good, bitter ending. Like, and to me, because it's not as, like, cut and dried as the book ending, I think this is a better ending because Renault realizes he didn't really get what he wanted. And now here we have Obi is now, you know, just like the, it mirrors the scene in the beginning of the movie where Obi is now giving out the assignments and Archie is just the secretary writing the assignments down. But, uh, there's something quite different about Obi's assignments, ain't there? Yeah. I love it. Cause like, I mean, on one hand you're happy to see the villain Archie get his comeuppance, but there actually is something kind of really sad about this ending, right? Because for as evil as Archie was, like we said, there was kind of like a level of, um, sick genius to what he was doing, right? A kind right. of impressive planning. And here he's been replaced by this person who's just like, well, we'll make him eat his own boogers, you know. Yeah. And, 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 we'll, and you see we'll it play in Archie's face. Naked pictures of his sister. No, his mom. <laughs> yeah, and you see it play in Archie's face like, oh, I just can't believe that this is what's – like I'm getting replaced by this. And also you can just see like he realizes what's going to become of the vigils, right? They're, they're right. going to be kind of a joke now. And I mean as much as they were the villains, there is still something kind of sad about that and, and something very realistic about how uh, people with like lesser plans can take power in our society well like i said it's very nihilistic to have the book anywhere where jerry just gets his ass beat and you know archie stays whatever but that's like a one-sided nihilistic ending whereas this jerry wins but then he realizes he actually lost 
And then on top of it, not only is Archie losing power, lost his power, but he's replaced by somebody worse. So now the yeah. school is probably a way worse place to be. You know? Yeah. Yeah, like really the only winners at the end of this are Obi and, and Brother Leon, which yeah. is like, that's that's still pretty nihilistic. Exactly. And I mean, obviously I do want to get off my ass one day and read the book just because I love the movie so much. But I would be more down for the book sequel if if the book sequel was picking up where this movie leaves off, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's it, man. I'll tell you what, I don't know how well this episode's going to be received, but unfortunately, like, I don't even really care, because this is almost, and I want to thank you, Trev, for doing this with me and stuff, because, like, I've been wanting to, you know, shout the gospel of this movie and how awesome it is for so long, and I've only been able to turn on a couple people, and... Like, I've just, you know, kind of the problem is I've never run into anybody who's even seen this movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like... No, I mean, I yeah, I have to say, like, I want to thank you for turning me on to it. I'm going to, I am going to follow your lead now. I'm going to order this DVD because it, it feels like something I should own. And, and I would say is like, I mean, maybe we should have said this at the beginning of the episode, but my hope is that um, people who have listened to other episodes of this show... Hopefully they'll just kind of take our word for it and check this movie out because right. we're giving it the hard sell because yeah. this deserves to have um, a much bigger following than it does. In all honesty, like this is one of the probably dozen movies like to cover or whatever. Like you know, and in this type of format, this podcasting format, you want to be entertaining and stuff. And like you know, but there's also sometimes you just got to talk about a movie, how good it is, why it's good, and whatnot, and like. This is really one of the very few movies that kind of inspired me to like want to you know do this podcast and do and that you know and, and you know it's like it's awesome to talk about the popular movies we do because they're a big part of our childhood and shit and I mean, people still love them but that's this is in a weird way kind of what the graveyard is all about it's it's shining yeah. light on long 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 forgotten movies. Yeah, I mean, if you trust us for any reason, you know, check this one out. And honestly, maybe this is going to sound highfalutin, but I mean, I know you'll be on my side. This feels like the kind of movie to me that could be in a few years, maybe rediscovered and end up with like a Criterion or something, you know, because it, it oh, has that it should be it, it has should. that level of quality and it just feels like such an undiscovered gem from this time period. Yeah, I don't know how well the VHS sold and, you know, it was I think, you know, MGM put out the DVD. I don't know who originally who handled the VHS and Laserdisc and all that. But uh, I think it was just something that it was never in widely circulation. But now that we have shit like the internet, because like I do searches for this movie, believe it or not, probably every time I watch, I watch this at least once a year, sometimes about twice a year. And I then I go and do searches, and like it's on a lot of blogs and stuff, and really kind of obscure, weird blogs that people talk about. So yeah, if anything, I hope this episode of this podcast kind of helps that groundswell even more. I mean, if like if fans. like one or two more people see it because of this, that's it's it's worth, it's it. worth it, yeah. you know. And come with us back to a time when like the young adult novels that were getting made into movies were something like this and not, you know, yeah. beautiful creatures and right. you know, that's <laughs> Just, kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean there there actually was a time where young adult fiction or whatever like it wasn't it wasn't the lollipops and blowjobs that we have now, you know. It, like it meant something because I mean, it, 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 you know, it's a pivotal time in everybody's life, no matter how well or not well your high school experience or your adolescence goes. You know, different people go through different things and have different experiences, but you know, it's 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 a you know it's a very important time of your life. Uh, you know, and it's nice to have all th- these things that reflect. You know kind of things you remember because like i said this movie 
brings me back to just not just stuff that I experienced personally, but so much shit I saw in high school. So much shit. And like I love how this movie there's a lot of really short but very pivotal and important scenes that like you really don't know realize how important they are until the third or fourth time you watch the movie. And they take mm-hmm. place in banal places, hallways, buses, bus stops or whatever. And like that's what I kind of remember growing up being like, you know, like obviously like you have those big moments in your life where you get to go somewhere and do something special or whatever. But like the majority of, of your growing up, it takes place in very minor places and very minor ways and shit. And I think this movie nails that perfectly. Yeah, I agree. And I'll, I'll tell you what, man, if I had my own theater and I could like to program double bills as I've oh, always yeah. daydreamed about, man, this and uh, three o'clock high, oh, what, what a, what a Saturday night double feature that would be, right? Two two films kind of hitting on some of the same ideas about high school, but in two totally different tones and and ways. But, man, they would work together so well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this is definitely – and what's good, too, is this movie isn't super, super, like, everywhere. But it's not it's not one of those, like, asshole ones where it's like, oh, it's out of print. Now it's 40 bucks on eBay. Like, you can still, if you hunt around, you can still get this for, you know, 8 to $10, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also um, – it's not bare bones. There's like a good thirty minute interview or twenty to thirty minute interview. With I think it's like, actually the interview is fifty minutes. Oh, is it? Yeah, I knew, I knew yeah. it was pretty long. Yeah. And um, and also audio commentary by Keith Gordon. So jump yep. on it. So yeah. So before we get out of here, uh, can you just briefly mention the other places where you're at, Trev? Oh yeah. Um, so check out uh, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Uh, the show I do with uh, Bird. Uh, that's kind of a uh, all movies, TV general nerdiness uh then i have days of future podcast which is my x-men podcast um that's kind of just more not like in-depth analysis but more just kind of conversational about the x-men movies comics cartoons toys all that uh just kind of two guys shooting the shit about x-men and then hopefully more episodes of 1980s movie graveyard yeah and uh you never know uh on the horizon there there could be (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there could be a new decade to talk about too we never know yeah. Yep. so yeah so thanks a lot uh retro movie lovers um if you hear this podcast you probably know everywhere we're at but in case you don't you can hit us up on twitter at 80s mve graveyard you can hit us up on facebook uh facebook.com slash 1980s movie graveyard you can even hit up our website 1980s movie graveyard.com um we're on iTunes. We're now on the Google Play. If you got an Android phone, and a lot of people complain, like, oh, I got an Android phone. It's really easy to go to the Google Play store and get our shit if you have an Android phone. Uh, and that's about it. So thanks a lot for listening. Trev, again, thank you. I know it sounds yeah. corny, but it's, this episode is kind of, you know, in a, it's a small dream, but it's still a dream come true. So <laughs> thanks a lot. Hope we didn't bore you. But most of all, I think, you know, even though I would hope, I don't know. I, you know, sometimes I do hear podcasts where they completely run through a movie the way we did with this one, and I, it, it makes me want to see it. So I hope we didn't spoil it for you or whatever, but, you know, I hope you well, still go out and see it. Here's the thing I'll say, Goat, that will maybe hopefully make you feel better. You, you were wondering if people are going to listen to this one, but I bet you that, like, the 35 or 40 people out there who are really into this movie will definitely listen to this one. Like, they'll find this podcast and listen yeah, to it. Yeah, hopefully this comes so, up on their Google searches and shit. Yeah. Because, yeah. So, yeah, thanks a lot again. Everybody, we'll talk to you soon. Um, I have no idea when this episode is coming out. So either you've you've heard our horror spectacular on <laughs> yeah, extravaganza. Maybe by, 
Maybe by the time this comes out, this movie will have had some kind of big resurgence. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're just a few weeks off for some reason. Maybe Keith Gordon uh, will be calling us. To- <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, thanks a lot, guys. Hope you loved it as much as we love doing it, and uh, we'll hit we'll hit you back soon. We'll be the '80s movie graveyard. Be back with a new episode, and it won't be too long. Trev will be back too. So yeah, next time I'll try to be back with a movie more people care about. That's exactly. What I'll try. <laughs> exactly. Enough of this Helen Slater. Keith Gordon nonsense. But sometimes you gotta pull Bushimi. Two for them, one for me. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. See ya. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.